Hello, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. That's kind of our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Uh, or you can use right below me the QR. I always get that backwards. The QR code that's sitting right next to my fingertip there. Uh, the QR code will pop you into the question thing. This show is entirely driven by your questions. And thank you because we have a good group to start out. But we always can use more. Plus, you have the chance if you're in the Mukana back end, which you'll learn about if you want to kind of uh, get a little more involved in the show, you can actually vote those questions up and down. And that's really important to us because that tells us what you're most interested in. Out of the entire list of questions for today, the ones that get the most votes, we spend the most time on, particularly at the beginning of the show. So it's a way that you can kind of affect the programming of this show. So you can do that. Or you can type in from the little QR code. That'll get you kind of quickly into a way to get your questions in today for today's show. You can also just type in the askofficehours.global list up there at the top of the QR code. That'll get you in as well. Today in our second hour, we're talking about building LUTs. Those of you who might not be in the video side of things, although today is kind of our video emphasis day, it's an acronym for a lookup table. And in a sense, it's really how colors coming out of one system can best be translated into another system. So we'll talk about the technical parts of it. We'll also talk about practical matters in terms of working with LUTs, how to use them to make your video look better than it otherwise can. And in some cases, it's really critical. We, in the early days of, for example, raw video, saw people who were just taking raw video and sticking it on, <laughs> wondering why it looks so weird. And it was because it didn't have the proper LUT, didn't have those values remapped into something that was visible and easy to watch. So that's our second hour. First hour today, though, Starts right now with questions. Your questions, Mitch, what do we have on the list? Thank you, Bill, and good morning, folks. Our first question from Zach Stallsmith in Chautauqua, New York. What are the panelists' opinions on the pros and cons of vMix versus Wirecast? We're going to start with Guy Cochran here. Guy. Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more people flock to vMix that were formerly uh, Wirecast users. Wirecast did just come up with some new updates. We had some concerns there for a little bit. Uh, they did implement the the Zoom uh, native ingest, so you can log into a Zoom meeting and you could pull in participants. So they are updating because I had concerns when we went to NAB last year and I walked into the Telestream booth and there was no Wirecast whatsoever. And uh, you know, it's kind of shocking. So uh, one of the cool things that it does have, though, is um, uh, Wirecast in particular has this uh, stock media library. So if you go in and you add a layer, you can say media files, you can say stock, stock, uh, or yeah, stock media library. And then in here, if you type in, let's say the word Seattle, uh, all these videos come popping up. And you can just, you know, grab any one of these. And some of them are, you know, like right here, it says HD, uh, but you can also pull in 4, 4K QuickTime movies. And so you have this huge arsenal of, uh, of uh, royalty-free uh, uh, libraries. But also you have some stock templates in here that are, that are really nice. Uh, there's also some hardware. Uh, Wirecast has Wirecast gear hardware. So vMix doesn't have like a certified hardware, whereas uh, Wirecast does. So for those, like some of the churches... 
Um, the one thing that when I tested one of those pieces of hardware is that it didn't take advantage of the GPU. So vMix takes advantage of the GPU. So you can throw in some hot rod, you know, 4090 uh, NVIDIA card, and there's a little uh, box in there that you could check for high performance mode. And uh, the other thing is SRT. SRT to me is huge. For some people, it may not matter, but uh, I could bring in multiple SRT feeds. There's so much more control with uh, with vMix, uh, and the community is just wonderful. And the, there's some Facebook groups that I'm in that have 30,000 people, and uh, they're they're really sharing knowledge. Uh, the little uh, playlists, how you can uh, do triggers and things like that. So uh, I think. We're, we're going to see just more adoption of, of vMix as time goes on. And it started out as a church for churches, and now it's just got widespread mass adoption. There's so many operators. Uh, it's it's good software. Alex? Yeah, I, I started my company on, on Wirecast. I mean, I, my first streams were FMLE and Wirecast, and, and you know, we, we built those out. Uh, if you are still using Wirecast and, it, and it's working great for you, then it's a great solution and you've got it figured out and you've got all the idiosyncrasies that are related to it. If I'm new and I was trying, if I was deciding which way to go, vMix or Wirecast, I would absolutely do vMix. <laughs> like it's it's just got a lot more tools. It's getting a lot more usage. Um, you know, so I, I don't think that I would, I, I don't think I would jump into Wirecast as a new user at this point. Uh, if you have it and it's working well, then keep using it. But, but I wouldn't invest new time into Wirecast uh, compared to vMix at this point. If, if I was on the Mac, I'd probably be using, I use Mimo. So I, I use Mimo Live. On the Mac, on a PC, I would be using vMix for that um, if I'm using, you know, in those, in those uh, environments. And so, so that would be my recommendation. Next. Oh, I'm sorry. Mitchell wanted to get into this. Mitchell? Oh, I just was going to ask the, the question that Alex just answered, uh, and that was, what if I'm Mac-centric and I just want to use Mac and I don't like using uh, a converted version on a uh, Macintosh? Yeah, I think, you know? I think I'm, I'm using Mimo, um, and, and I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. There we go. Well, there's a lot you can do with it. The hard part with Mimo, by the way, is just that it's, it took me took poor Oliver, I don't know, six or eight years to get me to turn it on because I'd open it up and I was like, this interface doesn't make any sense and I would walk away from it. And uh, so it, it's not like any other interface that I've done for live. Um, but now that I'm used to it, I start to build things and, you know, I'm kind of working through it. And there's, an, there's way more in it than I know how to use yet. <laughs> so, but it, it works really, I, for me, it's working really well on the Mac. Nice. All right. Next question. Next one, and it's an interesting question coming from Alex Lindsay from Novato, California. And here in our panel, Ronin 4D 8K just dropped. Let's discuss. Uh, and Mitchell, you actually got your hand in before Alex did. Do you have a comment before Alex takes us through what I, he's interested it really, in? Just, just what I was getting used to shooting 4K and posting a 1080, uh, 8K has to come along. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Um, I, I think it's it's great. I think it's great. that, But... 8K, that's a big step for a lot of people because isn't there a lot of infrastructure you have to deal with? Just Not just the camera, but all the other infrastructure that has to back that up. More hard drives more often. Alex, what do you think? It's not, it's not a live 8K. I don't know what the live output is. I mean, I think it has some version of that, but it's really just a, it's a, it's a film camera, I mean, at 8K. Um, it's 8K full, full frame. Um, I believe that the 6K, if I remember correctly, is Super 35. Um, but the 8K is, um, it's a full frame sensor. It is, it goes up to 75 frames a second at 8K, which is a little, I think that they, you know, they designed it before we knew that we might want to go a little bit faster for VR and so on and so forth, but it's good for slowdown. Um, it is, uh, I think it's 14 stops of dynamic range, nine stops of, uh, ND. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot to it. 
Um, and uh, it is, uh, <laughs> I, I put it on the waiting list. I can't afford it. If, if anyone wants to get me something for Christmas, this is one of the things on my list. Um, it's only $12,000. So so anyway, so this one, the the 6K is like $7,000 or $6,500. So this is a big jump up. Um, you know, it's it's using their new Zenmos X9, I think is the one that they're that they're using there. Um, it just looks like an amazing piece of machinery. The, the 4D, it's the first camera that I've seen in a long time that is like, okay, we're going to just rebuild a camera. Like we're going to take all the things we know and do something completely different. So they're using LiDAR for the focus and the LiDAR stuff. And, and um, uh, Corridor Digital did a great breakdown when the 6K came out um, of showing the wireless, showing the controls. Um, but you have a LiDAR, it's using LiDAR to do the autofocus, which I think is really effective. Um, it's got, you know, it's it's able to manage that bounce that a lot of times we see with with gimbals um, because it's got, it's it has the extra arm to it. It's doing that auto, all automatically. Um, it can be remote controlled, um, you know, so someone else can manage focus and can manage all the pan tilts. Uh, it is a, it's just an incredible, it, it's just a really imaginative camera, you know, that that I feel like we don't see, what we mostly see is is different ways to put a sensor into a box, you know, and I think that's great. And when you get out of the box, when you give me an F3 or even a even a Black Magic or not an F3, but a um, the uh, FX3, or you give me the the Black Magic camera, I'm like, why did you put it in this form factor? I just want a box. <laughs> so all of us just keep asking for boxes. This is not a box, um, but it is, and and it won't work for everything because you can't build all the things around it that you would normally do. But if you look at the demo reel of it, it is, I mean, there's just some really um, amazing shots and they, they're subtle. It's not like, again, if I needed to, um, there, there's a lot of reasons here. Let me see if I can turn this on here. Um, if you, uh, here's some of the, let's see here, some of the show reel. Um, but you're looking at these shots here. They don't look like a big deal, but they're, you know, these are all being done by, by you know, with a handheld, you know, basically. And, and you're not, you know, this is not a, um, you know, a lot of these shots are really hard to do, <laughs> I guess is what I would say. And so, and so they're, and they're not, they're not massive shots. They're just ways that, that you kind of glue things into, um, and they're showing a lot of the night stuff here. But, but being able to smooth all of this stuff out is, um, is pretty impressive. So, so anyway, so I would highly recommend um, at least checking it out. Hopefully, we'll get our hands on one at some point. Oops, sorry about that for the whoever's got to edit that in the future. Um, anyway, so uh, but um, yeah, there you go. There you go, uh, Mitchell. You wanted to come back in. Yeah, I just uh, I I don't know the camera. I think it's neat that there's an 8K coming out. I did have a discussion with my DP friend Tom Shustak, uh, works up in Philly. And his concern about 8K is the amount of time you have on today's technology for storage. Uh, storage is going to be an issue, Part particularly if you're using uh, those uh, little cards they stick in the Sonys or the uh, the uh, Amiras and Aries. Uh, it's just like, what is it, down to like 10 minutes, something crazy like that? Uh, it just and depends. You don't use the, the cards. Other, the other, I'm just going to say the other problem is uh, the availability of storage is getting tight right now. Uh, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, I'll, <laughs> sure, <laughs> like, like there's definitely, I, I definitely have concerns. Storage isn't really one of the concerns that I have when I'm shooting. I mean, we, we are just, you know, we just budget the number of terabytes that we need. This is not a live show. We're not shooting one hour at a time. We're shooting clips, you know, so these are not, um, you know, I don't, I think that on a given day, I, I'd be surprised if I went through five, you know, five to six terabytes, which to me would be, 
you know, shooting raw or whatever would not be that big of a deal for a professional shoot. So, so I think that, um, you know, I, th I think that it's not, um, <clears throat> because again, it's, we're not talking about something that we're shooting a live show at 8k. We are, <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, we are, uh, shooting, um, you know, individual clips that are 30 seconds long or 45 seconds long or, or something like that. They're not, so, so I don't, I don't think storage is that, I don't think that's, it's that big of a concern. I know it's not a concern for me, but I'm used to burning through a lot of storage and, and, and I don't think that that's, um, that's not where people, are, if you're going to spend $12,000 on this and you start using it, you're not the type of person that's going to worry about hard drives, you know? And so, um, and, and, you know, we, we, again, I come from when we still had film mags, so we had seven minutes. You know, so, so anything, you know, like, and, and a lot of times we treat those, those, you know, a lot of those little com compact um, storage as like film mags, like we're going to shoot them, we're going to pull them out, we're going to set them in a box, you know, and make sure that they're ready. We're not trying to use them in the same day, you know, because those, or, or we hand them off to somebody who's going to be copying them during the day while we're working, so. Can you put a, like a T5 or a T9 on? I don't know. On I, I bet you guys? can put a hard drive on it, but even if you didn't, I would just, I would just get an, I just bring enough whatever storage I needed, compact flash or whatever they're using for storage. I'd be surprised if you can't put a hard drive on it. But at 8K, I don't know if you'd be able to get the throughput. So I don't know what they're using for that. We'd have to do a little bit more research on that. Um, the uh, uh, We'd have to do some research on what I don't, because it, it doesn't list it right on the top of how it's using the storage. Um, it's got, a, oh, it's got a pro SSD mount. Um, so pro SSD, and, and I'm not familiar with pro SSD, so... That is going to be a very fast SSD, is my guess. I think it's the kind <laughs> that have the double uh, bandwidth uh, with uh, yeah contacts on. They may it. be doing some kind of RAID. Um, you know, so uh, that is going to be you know one terabyte. It'll burn through pretty quickly. I mean, that that'd be probably twenty minutes. You know, a terabyte would be twenty minutes of footage, is my guess at eight K. Um, and um, but it's going to be uh, and it does do ProRes RAW as well as ProRes HQ. You have to buy a license for ProRes RAW. Um, so anyway, I think that there's a it's one of those cameras that I think that you could decide as an independent filmmaker, I'm going to get this camera and, and shoot a short film. You know, I don't know if I'd shoot a feature film with it, but I would, I, I think you could shoot a, shoot your, uh, a short film for your demo reel or shoot commercials, small commercials and so on and so forth. Once you get into bigger things, I think the problem you get into is that, I mean, you can definitely do it with this, but there's infrastructure around Aries and Venices and, you know, all kinds of black magic cameras. And there's things that you, you want to have op multiple operators. I don't know if this would replace those, um, but I think as an independent, like I'm going to do local commercials, I'm going to do local things for corporate, I'm going to do s short films, small films, documentary films, like this would be the, probably the coolest documentary film camera, you know, other than being a big distraction for the people that are in the documentary, because <laughs> it looks so different. It'd be a great camera because you'd be able to capture all these movements through people's houses and so on and so forth as someone who doesn't, is not a Steadicam operator. Guy? Yeah, it just got me thinking how it'd be awesome if we could rent something like this uh, and bring it into after hours, you know, like crowds, yep. crowdfund uh, a rental from Lens Rental. Let's say it's 400 bucks, a couple people pitch in and then we just say, hey, we're all going to meet in here. We're going to walk through all the menus and answer any questions, but we're yep. just going to pop it open because same thing with like the Sony FR7. Um, 
I haven't got to get my hands on too much of the menus. And one of the things that we learned on the set of, of uh, this last shoot was that if you're recording, you can't enable clear scan. And so it, there's just little gotchas. It's like, you know, one of these things where uh, if we if we were able to rent this stuff, bring it into after hours, set up times labs, uh, same with the X32. I loved what we did yesterday because that's what I need. I, I just want to buy one just to learn it so that when I do get it on, on a show, I, need, I at least know the basics and not, uh, you know, totally lost as to where the compressor is or, uh, you know, how to... Yeah how to route something. Yeah, I, I, our big goal down down the road is to try to have uh, actual missions to do. You know, so we're going to shoot a short film or we're going to shoot a little script or we're going to shoot a commercial or something and we're going to use this thing and we're going to give our, you know, and so there'll be a day or two that's like yours, which is a lab, like us trying to figure this out. And then we're going to go do something because to your point, like that clear scan problem doesn't come up until you need it. So you can kind of go through it, but until you're putting it, like that's the hard part is you don't know what a product can do until you need it for an actual production. <laughs> because there's so many things that pop out like, oh, it doesn't do this thing, or oh, it's not good at that, or it says it does it, but it doesn't do it. You know, these are, or it doesn't do it well, or it, it, when you turn this on, it turns that off. And you, and the best way for us to figure that out is to do, do productions. And we're going to try to do a lot the, more of that next year. The media being able to actually record some of that and be like, hey, here's five seconds worth. We're going to put it up on this Google Drive. Go ahead and 100%. suck it down and walk it through Resolve and see how it grades and see how your computer handles it. Because some people might go, oh, I bought this camera. Now I got to buy a new computer because. No, ab absolutely. I, I mean, I think that or even putting it up on having it camera to cloud and just be doing just just pushing things up constantly so that everyone, everyone can download what everything like if we're doing these as tests, if we're doing a short film as tests. Everybody involved, and this could be kind of a crowdfunded thing where we, we cost everybody money to do it, but then that's going to help pay for the studio and pay for the actors and pay for the, all the other things. And then, but you just get all the footage as you as you work. So yeah, we're thinking about that. It looks like a perfect camera for those resume films. And remember, Christopher Nolan did Memento as kind of a resume film, and look what happened to him. So if you really have good ideas and you're really good at the craft part, and you just couldn't get the hardware before, I mean, hardware has never been more affordable. I, I yeah. will say that this is probably competitive. Like I would have, if I was. Gareth Edwards, I probably would have thought about this for, you know, this kind of camera for sure. shooting uh, the creator. It probably would have given him even more, more capability there. Absolutely. Because you want to preserve, you know, if you've got that much raster, you've got so many options that, mm -hmm. that open up things in post. So really great idea. So thanks for bringing the camera in, or at least the discussion of it. Let's go on to the next question. And it's from Guy Cochran in Seattle, USA, and right here on our panel. And Guy asked, did Instagram just open up RTMP ingest? Ooh, Guy, tell us. Throws the ball. He catches the ball. Uh, <laughs> I did that later, so I understand. So if you, if you switch your... Uh, your Instagram over to a professional account, you'll you'll now have, and anybody can do this, you'll now have the ability when you say create, you can say live video down here in the lower left. And when you say uh, live video, you enter in a title, we'll say test, and make sure if you're running a test that you actually say not public, but practice. So we'll practice. And when we click next, we get uh, the RTMP. Look at that. Beautiful. So let's go ahead and copy that. Let's jump over to Wirecast. Let's jump over to Output. Let's jump over to Output Settings. Let's jump over to Added. And does it do, does it, is it going to play it out as 16 by 9, 9 by 16, square? 9 by what 16. Is yeah. 9 by 16, so it's vertical? Okay. Vertical yeah, video. Exactly. I'm just going to keep the canvas size though on this one. I'm not going to go too crazy, but let's go ahead and pump in that address. Let's jump back over here, grab that key, copy, jump back over here to stream, populate that, say OK. Then if we hit um, output, uh, start broadcasting, start RTMP, 
we should see a uh, cut over to this lady here. Should see a preview coming in here, and boom, there it goes. We are live. Yeah. So that's how it works. And yeah, and, and that's exciting. Oh, we've been, we've been asking for this for a little while. <laughs> a couple of us have been, uh, you know, um, and and so this is uh, it's it's pretty exciting. And one of the things that's gonna, I think, this is gonna be a real game changer when it comes to how um, uh, all Instagram. Like, I was at a, an event the other night, and there was a bunch of creators. And one of the things that they had can't do the these backings on their cameras, a lot of them had it. So they could have one camera going wide and one, one phone going wide and one phone going vertical and they hit both of them and record what they wanted. So they just had the footage the, the way they wanted it. And they're using multiple phones for streaming. Like they would stream in two or three phones at the same time so they could have the different aspect ratios. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, like, but you know, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy talk. And now, now being able to um, theoretically send this up, um, and, uh, you know, you can have one feed, take it into AWS or whatever, slice, do a center, center cut for your nine by 16, do 16 by nine out to the, and all of that could be all done at one time. It's pretty, um, but the Instagram has been the big holdout, you know, like that's, you know, kept it out. I think TikTok will now let you do that, but I, or it has for a while, I think, but Instagram hasn't. So it's been, it's good. Things keep changing. We're moving forward. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York has a question. What are the pros and cons of using the SDI loop on a lot of Blackmagic design gear? I have a 40 by 40 router and would much rather route than loop. Am I mad? Mitchell? Looping's for losers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Once you've done a router, I mean, you have ultimate flexibility on distributing, uh, interconnecting. It's just the way to go. And, and, And once you're at it, I know that David probably does the routing exclusively. But looping's just there for convenience. I use it as a last convenience if you just need to make a uh, connection between two devices quickly. But uh, routing, that's the way. That's the ticket. Alex? I mean, sometimes you're using looping because you just don't have any more outputs on your router. So that's that's where we use it as, oh, I don't have to lose it. Um, or something's pretty far away and you want it, you know that this is the way it's going to be hardwired into it. Um, I do agree that I don't, I don't use looping very often. Um, it, oftentimes the looping will work when the device is down. So, I mean, like the one it's off because it's really a hard line between the two. I don't know if that's the case for the Blackmagic ones, for other ones that that, that loop is active all the time. So um, it, it has, but it does save you, again, we've had issues where we loop things through our multi-views, for instance, because we just want to see all the signals in the multi-view, but we, um, uh, we don't, we don't want to use up 16 more router points, you know, for that. So we would loop it through this, the multi-views and then out to everything else it needs to do. That way we get to see it. Um, but I, I, if I have a 40 by 40 router, the problem really is with a 40 by 40 router is you run out of routes pretty quickly. I do. <laughs> like I, I won't buy a 20 by 20, you know, like I, like I, cause I know that I'll run out of routes. I mean, in my home office, I would run out of 20 by 20, you know? And so, so the, um, uh, so I think that 40 by 40 is kind of a minimum where we really go is patch bays. So we hook the 40 by 40s to patch bays. And then at that point we can hardwire things. And it seems like a crazy thing to do. But when you do that, you're extending the power of your router. Um, so it's a less, much less expensive bay. Now, I do non-normaling patches, which I know people think are crazy. Um, but I'm, I'm risk adverse. And I, I don't ever want to pull something out of my patch bay and have another video go through it. <laughs> like, you know, like I don't want something to appear when, I, when someone pulled something out. I always want it to go black, you know, when I pull it out. Um, so, uh, so I use these 12G 
bit tree, you know, uh, uh, non-normal um, patches. But we have those patches and then you have them there. That way you can very quickly rewire for a specific show or rewire for a specific need and greatly extend the power of your, of your router because you're usually not using all the routes for every show. Nice. Uh, let's see. I got into a different place. Guy Cochran. Yeah, it's so nice to be able to have a router. Uh, if, you, if you're just doing a short hop and just need to pop, you know, the monitors right above from your deck or something and you just, it's convenient, but this burned us the other, uh, not burned us, but it just soaked up a bunch of extra time when we were short on it um, at this sh shoot down in, in Austin. I had uh, pulled a feed off the multi-view and then uh, Noah's like, hey, you should actually you know, have that, that shot. Cause I was running the cable cam. And so, you know, multi-view looking at a little tiny, you know, four inch box versus having the full screen preview, uh, it would have been nice just to punch it up on the router and it would have saved us, you know, two or three minutes and having to go grab another cable. So that's, that's the thing is when you're in the heat of the moment, being able to route something, just punch it in multi-view, nope, camera 10, boom, and done. Nice. Don't forget your votes on these questions. Drive how soon we get to them and how long we spend on them. So uh, if you don't know the system, uh, pop into the original website and make sure that you're part of the Mukana back end of the show. You get to vote and you get to uh, have a little chat during the course of the show. So that, the QR code uh, down here on this side, will also get your questions into the queue. That's very important to making sure that we talk about what you want us to talk about. Let's get on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, I recently purchased Stephen Slate's Audio's VSX headphone-based binaural room modeling system, and I found it very convenient for testing your mix in different environments. Ever used it? Alex, did you have an experience with this? I haven't used this one, but I've used a couple of that are similar because um, we were doing a bunch of testing with it. I, what, what I will say is that it gives you the chance to feel like what it might be like in those environments, but you, it's not a production-ready tool. None of them are. Um, you can't simulate a large environment in headphones. Um, and it's just, it, you know, I think that um, you don't, you want to think of it as something that's entertaining and something that kind of gets you on the playing field, maybe, if you're thinking about it. But really, the only way to mix for a large environment or even a different environment other than headphones is in that environment. Uh, there's a, there is the physics related to that is so complicated that these models are not really accurate to give you something that you could actually use in production. So if you're enjoying it, I think I'd keep using it. Um, and it gives you, lets you imagine what it might look like there, but don't think that it would be something that it would don't, and don't, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't talk to a production engineer about it. Like, well, I have a simulator and I can, you know, mix, send you a mix that'll work in the, in the room because they'll stop listening to you. So, so the, um, so the, um, so that's the only thing I would say is that they're not, uh, it's a it's a good way to think about those things, but it's not it's not going to be something that is production ready. And if folks are selling it as that, they shouldn't. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York has a question. Dug up an old Matrox triple head display port edition. Do you think this can be used to get around the limitation of the MacBook Air M2 support of one external display? Alex. <laughs> this is a very old display. I didn't. I'm surprised it would even work with an M2. I mean, this is a, the the triple head matrix triple head has been you know was used a lot. We we had it used in theater environments and and other things where you'd have a single connection where you get out to three three different things. You might be able to do it, but I I have you actually plugged it into a MacBook? <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it's viable. Like we we I know we had it in conduit where you could identify those things and send things out to those different. Uh, to, that's why I know about the screen. But but I I didn't even yeah I didn't even know that they 
still worked. So uh, if you can do it, let us know. Um, but I, I, I don't know if it would work or not. Um, I, I do, I would recommend thinking about, you know, the, what we found, I played with the pluggables and I played with a couple other ways to try to extend these and none of them are super stable. <laughs> so, yeah. so I would, I would say that the, the Mac is real, they're, they're, li they're not limiting it because they're being mean. They're limiting it because that's what the computer is designed to do. And, and when you start moving it past that, it's kind of like overclocking your, uh, your processor. I mean, you know, do it with, I, I don't know if, if you're doing simple things, maybe, uh, but, uh, I did not find extending, at least using the pluggables, extending it to be a hundred percent stable. So I would be careful. I have the same experience with the OWC dock on my, um, in my voice booth. I've got an M2 Air and, um, one display works really well. I have the monitor vertical, um, a 1920 1080, uh, IPS monitor and it works beautifully for that. And I do scripts on that all the time, but you add a second display and it, that the horsepower in that air particularly is just not, I think it's just the amount of video RAM they have in or something. It gets to the point where you just run out of gas. So. If you're going to do multiple screens, I would suggest you head into the MacBook Pro line. Next question. Here's Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking a question. Suggestion for the panel. Have a vintage mic day. Pull those old ribbon microphones off the shelf and show off a collectible. Uh, let's dive into it, Mitchell. I think it's a great idea. I'd love to do it. You know what's interesting about vintage audio, especially analog gear, is it still just as viable today as it was way back when? Yeah, granted, there's some uh, noise and things like that. But um, a lot of people really revere that old uh, analog gear, even if it is a ribbon microphone. It's not so much in the video world. I mean, I wouldn't put on my uh, vintage Matrox triple head uh, to show off. I would, on the other hand, love to bring out a 77DX uh, RCA microphone and reintroduce people to what a ribbon microphone can sound like. But I've got my, uh, uh, I don't have a lot of microphones, but I've got my 414 that I'm using and my uh, trusty U87, which was my first purchase back in 1979. And other than a uh, re, uh, uh, re refresh over at Gotham Audio, um, it's pretty much the same mic I started out with. You know, in if you completely ignore all the, uh, uh, the the new things that have come along, digital and otherwise, it's still as viable today as it was back then. So let's do it. Alex? Self-noise. <laughs> like, anytime someone says, I like my analog software, I'm like, well, you keep stacking it up and then I'm going to end up with a bunch of noise that I got to deal with. And, and I, I have to admit that ever since I was a little kid, I hated the noise. So, um, so I, I think that that's the problem I have. I have to admit that I'm not, a, I'm not very... Um, precious about the past. I think that would be the word, the best best way to say it. So I don't have a lot of vintage stuff to go to because when I'm done with it, when I have a new best thing, I usually get rid of the old things pretty quickly. Um, I don't really look back that much. Um, and I, you know, like I'm not one of those people that wants to stack a bunch of, I don't want like a rack full of analog stuff that I'm going to run my stuff through. I'm like, let's just get the cleanest uh, preamps we can get and then we'll do everything in post. <laughs> like, you know, and so I just want clean signal. Like, like you know, and, and so I feel like, you know, if it's uh, the, the analog uh, obsession, you know, kind of feels like people who want to shoot Polaroids or, or other things, SX70 stuff or whatever. It's, it's like, okay, it's cute, but it's not, not really. I mean, I, I, I get it, but... Um, Sure. That's all I Mitchell? 
Um, Alex, I, I reject your reality and substitute my own. I think microphones <laughs> don't have a lot of uh, a self-noise, particularly if they're passive the way they are. Oh, let me finish. And um, it, it would be good to do it with a modern digital uh, external device or preamp uh, matched sure. to a ribbon mic. I think that would be a great, uh, great show off. It's boarding on religion. Let's keep things in the yeah, guy. Here's my guy. vintage uh, DPA 4061. You know, I looked around. I couldn't find anything really old. It's like everything's pretty I mean, modern. I mean, good old so. mics are, have, a, have, a, have a real great sound and everything else. It's just, you know, I, uh, I just think that there's, I mean, I'm using a $200 mic that I think sounds better than the $600 mic that I was using before. It just depends on the person's voice, you know, and I think that the, um, and, and, you know, so I, I'd be fun to do. I just don't know how many of us have vintage mics that are worth it. I mean, I've got an SN58 that I've had for 20 years, but I don't think it's any, it sounds any different. Well, I'm speaking from the point of view of somebody who on the shelf behind me up there has a carbon mic sitting next to the wire recorder that came with it that has its own little weird personality. There's also a Sennheiser... Uh, 416 up there in blonde that I've had for decades and the my first voiceover mic that I bought out of the studio where I was hired for my first voiceover all those years ago, which is a sure SM5B fat boy. And so, yeah, I agree on both sides, actually. If I'm doing work today to send out, absolutely, I want the best. And that's going to be the new digital circuitry, which is way less colored and effective, at least in most cases. Um but I do have a fondness for some of those sounds. And I sold a set of Sony C37As that I'd had for probably 30 years to Nashville. And the producer that I sold them to was delirious to get them because he is one of those set of golden ears and he particularly wants to try to get vintage sounds. And so for him, there was nothing more authentic than getting the mic that uh, a singer like Patsy Cline or something like that could have sung into and try to recreate the feeling of that. So it just depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do modern work and you just want it to be clean and clear, yeah, stay away from the old stuff. If you're looking to recreate an experience from a vintage era or something like that, there's nothing to me more authentic than the vintage equipment that you might have used for that. So both sides have a place in it, and that's my feeling anyway. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. I have an LG quad display, 4K monitor, set as the main display on an M2 Mac Mini. In display preferences, it's set to default, which says 1920 by 1080. Why is Mac OS defaulting to this? If I select more space to give me 4K, everything is tiny. Guy. Yeah, I have that same display. It's sitting right here. That's a quad. And so uh, one of the things that you might want to do is double check your cable. So if you're connected via HDMI, make sure that it's one of the newer generation 2.0 type cables. Uh, it could be that when that handshake is occurring, make sure that, that when the handshake does occur that you're in the full screen mode. So not in the quad mode, you're in the full screen mode. Uh, the other way to do it is with the USB-C. So this ha not only has a uh, HDMI input, it has uh, a, uh, uh, what's that other one? So there's USB, DVI, uh, not DVI. Display port. So as a display port, so if you use one of those that's capable of 4K, then uh, run it run it with the correct cable and see if that helps with the handshake and do a restart and see if that actually detects because there might be an ADID handshake thing going on at first uh, handshake. So uh, those are my suggestions. Let's go to the next question. 
Douglas Carmichael, a producer, mentioned using ChatGPT4 to proofread and correct subtitles with the risk of LLMs today, hallucinations, hallucinations, for example. Would you trust LLM output in your production pipeline? Alex. I definitely would trust LLM after we've read it. I mean, there's there's definitely things I wouldn't use it to correct. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't use it to correct subtitles because subtitles are um, they're pretty specific um, and it needs to be able to see those things. And so I probably wouldn't do that. What we typically do is have something like AI sometimes build the subtitles and then we read them as a person. We have a person read them and then correct them um, to know to into, the, into that knowledge. But I wouldn't do the final pass with the LLM. I do the first pass with the LLM um, because it'll it'll probably get 95 percent there. Um, like we use Simon Says.ai for stuff inside of Final Cut, and it just goes out, comes back in. All the, the there's a subtitle uh, layer, and then you just go watch it, and you just kind of and what what it does really well, what the AI does really well with subtitles, is it gets all the timing right. It might miss miss a word, but you don't have to figure out the timing. The timing's all perfect, and so then you go in and just change. Oh, that's the wrong word. That's the wrong word. That's the wrong word. And and it's really it takes you ten minutes to go through an hour. Oftentimes, or I mean, if you go really fast, <laughs> you can skip through a lot of those things. But it might take you an hour if it's an hour show or 45 minutes. I mean, I, I you oftentimes will run it at 2x or 1.5x and sit there and watch, you know, watch it go through and just and just make that correction. But we, we have humans do the last pass typically to make sure it's right. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York is back. Reference in, ref, re-engineering my mobile rig and curious about reference in. Is it safe to pre-wire all devices if I don't have the sync generator? Alex? No, don't do that. Like if you're going to, if you're going to, there, there's nothing worse than a system starting to get confused about reference. So um, you can have all kinds of idiosyncrasies. You can have things drop out. You can have clocking errors. You can have, and it just has to do with, the, it, I wouldn't plug anything into a reference unless I'm ready to supply it with with a word clock or, or something that's going to tie it together there. So so I wouldn't, um, uh, I would not not do that. Like I would, I would, if and I would get something. I, I think it's, if you're going to build a kit, Get a reference, get reference for it, but do not. Um, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would make sure that it's got, it's got a signal if you're going to plug it in. Mitchell, yeah, I agree 100. percent I mean, I have a lot of separate digital gear in my rack over there into a hybrid uh, digital analog console, and if it wasn't for the fact that I had word clock and a great word clock uh, synchronizer going to each of those digital devices, uh, you could have all kinds of mayhem if you didn't expect. And, it. and I want to correct myself. I said word clock. I meant. A, a burst. <laughs> yeah, I was talking yeah. about yeah. digital so, audio requires yeah. word clock and uh, yeah, black burst certainly. Yeah, but you can. Yeah, we're not. Working. Working. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we'll, that'll be another thing. But but I wouldn't I wouldn't plug anything into that if I were. Um, uh, uh, I wouldn't plug anything into it if it wasn't going to supply it with something. Yeah, just very quickly for those of you, uh, you know, video signals have very strict requirements for timing. There's a vertical interval, and then the first line has to hit for all your cameras if you're mixing them at exactly the same point. And that's what these uh, time-based correctors and things like that ensure happens. So don't take away the technical trum- uh, timekeeper, the drummer for the system that is keeping everything on the same clock. That's very important. Next question. Zach Stallsmith in Chautauqua, New York. I've got a Behringer X-Touch MIDI. Am I able to use this as a MIDI controller to move a virtual T-bar in production software such as Wirecast or VMix? Guy. 
There are some templates inside of vMix to control MIDI devices, but I'm sure you can't just do it with the uh, the built-in that uh, Joe DeMax's uh, central control. It, you can download this for uh, a trial version. They have the Behringer X-Touch line, and then of course they have you know all these other controllers, the control surfaces and cameras. But then you know you you have uh, uh, vMix and Wirecast as some of the uh, video mixers that you can control with central control. So that would be the way to do it. There you go. Let's move to the next question. Bill Davis, our host and from San Diego, California. I think he's tossing himself a Cochrane here. TikTok vertical goes large. Yeah, I am throwing a Cochrane. I got a ping from one of my Facebook friends, uh, Lisa Cardenas, and she works at TikTok now. And uh, they've been putting on shows, and I, I tossed that in here, and I'm going to play it out. Um, that's Cardi B. She was the star of a show. This is Lissa backstage with some of the artists involved there. But this is what I wanted to bring up. We all talk about vertical video. Look what they're doing in terms of taking that form factor and putting it into very, very large scale live shows. And I just thought it looked pretty outstanding. I mean, this is the level. I think Hamish Hamilton was switching this in the background. They've got huge amounts of money and they are putting on some amazing productions and vertical is a definite piece of this puzzle. Here's the control room. Look at the number of iPhones at the bottom of this that is feeding in the vertical video into the switcher and making this part of the process. It's been amazing. And uh, Lisa did one of their little kind of on cameras uh, talking about exactly what's going on back there. These, This is suddenly playing in the big time, and you can see why the art directors are interested in this, because it's a really good form factor for showing people on massive screens and things like that. It's just a different era out there. And so for everybody who poo-pooed vertical video in the early days, and I was among them when I first started out, things have changed, and people are starting to understand where it fits and where it doesn't fit. And in TikTok, I mean, when you're in these kind of things, when you've got these massive productions happening, and they are putting up giant vertical screens to be able to take advantage of this, it's a coming thing. So just wanted to let you know about that. Mitch? Yeah, it does look cool. And I would think that it would take some special uh, skills for a camera operator to stay tight on a singer uh, in a vertical mode because you've got some uh, constraints there to deal with. Well, I think you're just going to switch the camera monitors into vertical so that they are seeing their shot. I mean, that's critical for a camera to see what's going out of the camera. Uh, Alex? We mark those off pretty quickly. So we, we have for iMag, it's pretty common to have uh, different formats that you're trying to fit into. And so they just tape them off and tell the camera. And most of the camera operators that work in that environment don't have any, <laughs> there's no challenge for them because they just have black, either black or just masking tape over. This is your window that you're trying to frame into. Um, and they usually can't see the rest of it or don't care about the rest of it. Oftentimes we have a 16 by 9 going out and then, and then you have iMag. And so iMag, the camera operators have that, that guide but we're taking the 16 by 9 for the stream. And it just means everything's very centered and a little wide, you know, for us, you know, what, what we're sending out. Um, and so, yeah, so there you go. Just a different world out there. And it's, you know, that that's their brand. The TikTok generation are watching on their phones. So they want to make sure that they kind of quote that in their productions. Let's move on to the next question. Rick Gray in Washington, D.C. asked, is there a way to do surround sound in the X32 or do you have to do it in a DAW and send it back into the X32? Alex. Uh, you want to do a DAW and send it back into the X32. Um, I, the, uh, um, we, 
it's not a, you could do something that's kind of like surround in an X32, but it's not going to be really surround. Um, so, um, so we, I think, and Mickey might be able to let us know. I can't remember, I can never remember the name. Deer VR is one of them, but we're not, that's not what we're using. Uh, when we're doing the 5.1, we're uh, sending it, sending it back out um, to Pro Tools. And in Pro Tools, where we have a plugin that we're using, and I just can, I, for some reason, Deer VR, <laughs> this is a, this is the, the benefit of branding. Deer VR sits in my head really quickly, so I immediately think of it, but that's not the one we're using, so I can never keep, it, it fills the space of the other one. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. So um, anyway, but um, I would go out to a DAW, um, HarpX. Uh, HarpX X is what we're using to do the, oh, we're de decoding am ambisonics there. Um, sorry. So we're doing the ambisonic decode with HarpX. Um, and then, uh, but I would go to the DAW to do the five dot, to do whatever surround you're going to do, Atmos, um, so on and so forth. I wouldn't, uh, there, at an X32, I wouldn't do that. You can start doing 5.1 in a QL1, and then there's lots of support as you keep on going up for from different, especially broadcast mixers, because they have to deliver in 5.1, or a lot of them do. There you go. Uh, don't forget, your questions still drive the show. Uh, we've got a good group of questions to today, but your votes count. And if you vote things up, we'll get to them uh, hopefully before the end of the show. I think we'll be able to squeeze everything in today, but we're pretty close because the question queue has been filling up. So your votes are important. So if you can get into the back end system for Mukana and make your thoughts known about what you want to see more of, that'll help us. Let's move on to the next question. And via QR code, like C.J. Cavell from Downingtown, PA, looking to hook an Insta360 link and a mic into a Roland UVC2 dock, is the Obsbot View VC to HDMI the best way to get video into that Roland, or can the panel recommend a simpler way to make an executive executive look and sound great on Zoom? Guy Cochran. Yeah, the Insta360 link is a fantastic camera, and it's super simple just to plug it in, and it works. So by running it into this Ozbot, all you're doing is you're adding latency, and you may even be stripping away some of the capability of zoom and pan and uh, all the things that, that it's great for. So keep it simple. You don't need the Ozbot. So the, the UVC device, um, the Roland, I have that same dock, but that's for bringing a, a mirrorless or some kind of HDMI in and marrying it with your audio. So I would go ahead and just direct install 360 link and then use the Roland for your audio or another USB mic, but that's keeping it simple. Alex. I wouldn't use a link for an executive. So, <laughs> like, so, so, so I, I just don't, I mean, if, if I'd be going to a bigger camera for executive for a link, I would, I mean, I, I use links for when we send out little kits and when we do little multi cameras and we're doing things that are, that we're going to bring together. Um, but I don't think the quality is high enough for an executive. So, I, you know, like for an executive, I'd be looking at super 35 sensor or higher. If you, if you have an executive and they want to matter, then you want to shorten their depth of field. You know, like it, it's, it is like I, we had a, a partner who, the, when they were working with their executives, their executives saw them on A7s, um, and literally bought A7s for everyone in the entire C-suite. Like, just like, this is what we want to look like, it, you know, for an executive, so much of what you do is confidence, you know, and and you want to feel and look as big as you possibly can on this on the screen when you're talking to folks, and the money you're spending for an executive, it's not that it's not that much money to just go a little bit further and get a super thirty five sensor, and then put it, put something on there and and build them a real kit. I think that exec, I mean, again, for your managers, get a link and don't put anything in between it and just let it work. For your managers, is fine. Um, the managers that really want to. Uh, move forward, we'll probably go ahead and buy a bigger camera, but you don't have to buy them for that in the camera. But when you're spending money on a, on a I, I think it's a huge mistake when people are spending money 
um, on the, the kind of money they're spending on executives and then not giving them a space to look and, and sound as good as they possibly can. I think it's a, I think it's a huge error and it's why they're, it's one of the many reasons they're having so much trouble with their uh, employees is they look really small. They look like they look small and silly <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, and they, and I have definitely worked with executives that not only have, these are pr pretty large companies. They not only have a good camera, they have an entire studio next to their, an entire studio with three or four. I know one executive that has an entire studio with three or four different looks um, with their, with the camera setup. And it just depends on what they're, whether they're talking to employees, whether they're talking to the public, whether they're talking to other things and they can move that around. And um, now I'm not saying you need to do that, but I would say I would get us, you know, for an executive, I'd move that camera up past the web camera. Next question. Oh, I'm sorry. Mitchell Hill wanted to get under the, oh, I, I already called it. So let's go ahead and go to the next one. Okay. Next question. Robert Clark in Chicago. This news channel is using all AI anchors. Movement is impressive. Now I know why anchors or actors are concerned on AI. Should news anchors start looking at their contracts? And by the way, this is a QR question. There you go, Alex. Uh, yeah, the um, it, it's really impressive. Like it's it's really impressive. And and I think that the thing is is that for general just delivery of the news, you probably could get away with it. You know, like it, it is. Um, you know, it's not perfect. There's a little bit of a. Um, you know, th there's a little stop and start. Some of the spaces aren't quite right, everything else. But as a version, as a V1, I could see, uh, you know, I think that your major networks would probably not do this, but I could definitely see people in smaller markets and um, in smaller areas that just need to deliver the news um, could be done. Be, be, they could be doing this with AI in um, less than three years. You know, like I would say it could be, I mean, it's doing. they're doing this now here. Um, most of the time, if I'm listening to something, I don't know who those people are. Like, I don't know, I don't know who they are when they're like reading the news to me. Um, it, I do care about whether it's who's going to talk when they're giving their opinion, but if they're just del delivering the news, I don't necessarily know who they are. Um, so I think that that's the big advantage that, of that. So, and Come I think a long that, way since Walter can, Cronkite was the most trusted man in America, it, it's a different landscape now. And I think I well, agree with you. People the, just the, don't feel the news is an arbiter of those kind of things. Well, but the thing is, the person reading the news isn't writing it. I mean, like the, the thing we have to remember that they're they're reading text that's in front of them, you know, like they're and they're very rarely writing all of that text. So it's not like it's, you know, it's someone who is good at delivering text, you know, um, in, in voice and, and looks nice when they do it. Um, now, there are there are definitely places where you still need humans when they're making any kind of they're, they're discussing things, interviewing um, those things. But when you're talking about telling you what happened last night, you know, as news, they're reading oftentimes reading copy that they didn't write, you know, for that for that process. And so so I think that I mean, they used to write it, but they don't write it now. I mean, they yeah, it I think package news is still like that. I do think that the live hits that we see um, Anderson Cooper in, in yeah, some place or somebody on the Fox channel from yeah, someplace that's, live. But that's but, important. But but what this opens up is the potential of having uh, an incredible amount of one thing we're missing when we talk about replacing people is there's a lot of things we don't report on or there's a lot of things that we don't generate content around because there's not enough of a market. Like we don't know how to make money with that. So we don't hire people. We don't do things. We don't put all those things together. So this is allowing, this was going to allow for content distribution of all kinds of niche information, you know, like that, that is just kind of flowing in instead of like all the things you would think of on blogs and everything else, you could just get it in audio or video or, you know, those types of things. I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of books that I want to read 
that I don't want. I don't want to read them. I want to listen to them. But no one has recorded any audio for it because they've decided that market isn't big enough. And um, and I and I uh, I'm waiting for Africa biography biography of a continent to be available in audio because I would listen to it over and over and over again. I just don't want to read 700 pages again. And so so the uh, so I think that that is there's and all the magazines and everything else. I mean, eventually that all wants to be audio and video and everything else, but there's not enough of a there's not enough money to do it. So I think this is going to open up a lot of opportunity. Uh, Mitchell. Uh, being the technical Luddite that I am, I don't trust anything that uh, sounds and smells like an AI. Um, and generally, you can sniff them out with today's uh, technology. But maybe someday they'll be able to model Walter Cronkite and uh, make a good facsimile of them, in which case I might be willing to change my mind. <laughs> uh, I, don't hold your breath, I would think, for Walter. Uh, next question. Michael Patra from Poland asked, uh, do you know a website with detailed statistics of YouTube channels? One where you can find the history of obtaining subscriptions from the beginning of the channel. Social Blade isn't very accurate, and I'm looking for something else. Alex, what do you know? Yeah, not really. <laughs> you know, so that data is not something that's necessarily public. It would what it would require is to is to be it would require you to be um, scraping their numbers, and the numbers that you get externally are not as accurate as the numbers that you get internally as a content owner. So the chances of them, um, of, of that data being particularly, um, uh, for YouTube specifically would be hard. There's definitely people who can show you what the growth is of Twitter. You know, so there's, um, there's a variety of, of tools that let you track other social networks. But if the social network has more data on the internal than the external, you're probably not going to get anything that you could really use effectively. There you go. Next question. Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Anyone on the panel with an LG 43UN700 quad display on Mac OS try the automatically adjust display to show high dynamic range content setting? It looks awful. The monitor is capable of HDR, but I had to turn it off. Guy Cochran's going to help us out, Guy. Yeah, when I first got the display, I was all excited and I tried it as well and something was amiss. I don't know what it was, but I thought they would have cured it by now. Uh, if I was to need to do it, I would actually pipe it through my Apple TV and do a share screen that way. The handshake that occurs with the Apple TV should get that sync correct. So that, that if you have an Apple TV, that's a way to give it a roll and see if that helps. Alex? Uh, the question is, is when it doesn't look right, what doesn't look right? So that's, so that's the big, um, like, is it... Is it that it looks like it's nuclear? Does it look, sh you know, uh, drab? Does it look so? You got to tell us what you're what you're actually seeing. It, it looking bad. There's a lot of ways it can look bad. Um, if it's typically what this is, is the um, uh, the EET, you know, the, the, the EETF or the EOTF or the OETF. <laughs> but this is a this is the transfer function. It's it's actually what we're talking about in the next in the next uh, discussion is. How are you getting from one color space to another? So usually when an HDR signal does not look correct, it means the, the, that the signal coming into the monitor is not what it expected because it's just doing a transfer function from I got this coming in and I'm going to convert it to that. And so if it looks really bad, if it looks like really, really – so for instance, if it's – if it looks really, really bright, like everything's blown out or everything's all posterized or whatever, typically that means that it's coming in a 709 and being um, and, and it, it, it thinks that it's HDR. It's coming in as a log or HDR and it's actually 709 and it just goes crazy. You have to know where you're going from and to to make that, that transfer function work. And Alex. Oh, I'm sorry. That was Alex. Let's go to the next question. 
Danny Grizzle from Longview, Texas, asks, I just don't see 8K as a distribution format. Isn't it beyond the biological limits of the human eye? For origination, 8K seems ideal for reframing, digital moves and post, and stabilization. Alex. Depends on the size of the screen and how close you are. Um, 85-inch screen at 10 feet, you can definitely tell the difference between 4K and 8K. <laughs> like, you know, um, you know, bigger screens than that, which we're getting bigger and bigger, um, you, you, it, it, you can definitely tell the difference. Uh, I would say at under 85 inches, at more than 10 feet, you can definitely not see it. <laughs> like, you know, like it, you can't tell the difference between 4K and 8K. So it depends on how close you are. We just have to remember that, that 4K monitors, uh, 4K 85-inch are now sub $1,000, the 8K ones, because what happens is, is that as they, get, as they get through the cycle, they stop making, you know, they start, the, the efficiencies go up. And so you'll see everything probably will be 8K in two or three years, just because that's, what, that's the monitor that they're making. Um, and so um, I definitely think that, you know, the, 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 the other side of that is frame rate. And what's interesting is that most of these TVs, even at 8K, are running at 120 frames a second. I will tell you that at 8K, 120 frames a second, 85 inch or larger, you just look, it looks like you're an HDR. It just looks like you're looking into a window. Like it just, it is a, it, it will change how we make content, you know, when that becomes something that we're generating, but it's taking a long time to get there. Um, and, and I do think that the, the, the real reason to use 8K right now is exactly what we talked. You oversample, so it's a cleaner image. You can stabilize things. You can pan and scan. You have more room to work with for effects and keys and mats and all kinds of other things. So there's a lot of advantages to shooting in HK, 8K, but the 8K footage that, that I've seen on very large screens, HDR, 120 frames per second, when they move the camera, I could feel my stomach going in. Like, and that, you know, like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an entirely different experience. Mitchell? Danny, I agree with you. As a practical matter, um, I just don't see 8K as being necessary just yet because I don't think it's been adopted by enough people for it to make a difference to that small percentage that can see that difference. I still shoot 4K and post for my clients at 1080. Um, and just to put it in perspective, it's sort of like the U-Matic format that would never go away. As far as uh, pan and scan and uh, moves and post and stabilization, I've got plenty of room in 4K when I'm shooting to be able to do all of those things. Guy? It's magical. <laughs> if uh, you want to take a look, just go to your local Best Buy. They have some 8K demos running. Uh, when I went to CES a couple of years ago, this was 2019, I, I interviewed Cliff and we were showing the uh, world's first 8K consumer camera. And as I went through the Sanyo booth, they had the bigger brother. This is the one of the, the Sanyo 8Ks, but they also had Premiere 2019 editing 8K. And then they showed uh, how in Japan they are, uh, they have this whole entire ecosystem uh, for IP delivery and 8K data management. So it's coming. It's it's there in Japan. It's already, they're broadcasting it. So it's coming. Just you wait and see. <laughs> Next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. Has anyone on the panel used the Rode Streamer X device? If so, what are your impressions? And if not, what are your impressions? Nobody raised a hand on this one. So I don't think uh, don't we have it. anybody in today's panel. Yeah. Alex, yeah, I don't do you have a thought? I don't, I don't think we've used it yet. Um, I think the hard part is, is that uh, it is for uh, someone who's getting new into the market. And the problem you have is that a lot of us have kits. So in this group, it's hard to get us to buy something new. So unless Rhodes sends us something to test, 
uh, you look at it and you go, oh, that looks really good, but it's a lot of money that I could spend on something else. And so, um, and my system is working okay. So I think that that's been the problem is that, um, and, and we're going to work on that. We're going to be doing more outreach to companies to send us stuff to play with um, so that we can hopefully, so I don't have to keep on buying it and sending it back to Amazon. Um, so so anyway, so the um, I feel bad about it sometimes. <laughs> Not all so we've time, got time for this one last one and I'll just satisfy Douglas's curiosity. So read the next question and then we'll- uh, From back. Douglas and he's asking, Bill, you mentioned uh, iPhones being used as cameras at that TikTok event. How would you get an SDI out of an iPhone? Would there be a web presenter-like device with a USB-C input, or would it be an HDMI to SDI first? Don't want to mislead you. They were not being used as cameras in the uh, in the truck or in the position mix. You see them down here as monitors. I'm sure that those were like promo ads or things like that that could be switched into those large vertical screens out there. So I didn't want to imply that the cameras for this event were iPhones. This is in the back end in terms of feeding to those big screens. So that takes us pretty close to the next transition here. Thank you very much for sticking with us and uh, for all of your questions in the first things. Don't forget the Isadora Lab with Elwes and Spiro normally happens on Thursdays at 10 a.m. I'm assuming that one hour after our show is finished here, it's going to come along as always. Today's show, as you know, in just a few minutes, we're going to be diving into building LUTs and talking about that for a good little bit. Tomorrow, it's power hour. How do you manage power while in production? That's one of the things those of you who have shot a lot in the field you know, you walk into anything. You walk into a historic house that has all ungrounded outlets. You uh, realize you're going to be out on the salt flats um, shooting off rockets and there's no plugs anywhere. So where are you going to get power to power your productions? It's a big deal. So we'll be talking about that Um and what considerations you should have in mind. I know one of the first things I do when I walk into a location, I have a number of test things, and I'm just going to test power and test power and test power to the point where I know that what I'm going to be doing for my production is going to be stable and that nothing's going to fail. Uh, that kind of takes us through our first hour. So let's head into the second hour. Welcome back. And Office Hours is talking LUTs today, lookup tables. Uh, that process of taking the color science that you're dealing with and moving it from what it exists like in the digital file into something that you need either for display or to correct things that were wrong in the beginning. Uh, so LUTs are a big deal. And as we get into things like raw video, they're really a critical part of the entire production pipeline. The camera's going to shoot one thing optimized for range of contrast or for what the camera sensor can do. But when you need to actually use it, even if you have to just monitor it in the field, a LUT or a lookup table is what allows you to take something that does not look as you need it to look in order to judge color and resolution and a whole bunch of things. And it turns it into something that you can pay attention to in the field really quickly. It's really just a mathematical process, essentially. And so that whole mathematical process, using lookup tables, using LUTs, both uh, in the field for production and then afterwards, a LUT is one of the things that people commonly use to create a look, a particular aesthetic on a piece. We've all seen like the uh, teal and blue or the teal and magenta look in music videos for a long time. Well, 
that might have started with applying a LUT. Could have been other ways they did it, but these are the kinds of things that LUTs can do for you. Alex works with these a ton, and so I'm going to ping him now and have him into the discussion to talk about all the work that he's been doing. I, I work with them some. <laughs> a ton, I think a ton that may be a bit of an it, understatement. It, it rhymes. It rhymes. It rhymes with a with a a, a, a ton. But but I want to be careful of of, of 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 you know we're going to talk about some basics here. Um, you know, typically I will admit that when I for most of the lots that I use, I am usually um, sending it out to somebody. So so I'm I'm going to send this. I'm going to show you how I've been doing these. Uh, you know, for myself, but usually when I have when I have a lot that matters, I'm going to send it to someone like Charles uh, Charles Klein, who we've had in our in our panel in the past, and and he's going to build a lot for me. And sometimes it's with, um, but I'm what I wanted to do is I realized that I got stopped a lot by going, oh, I don't know how to get it into the camera, I don't know how to get it out of the camera, I don't know how I want to sample it, and so it was really you know I was really kind of struggling with it, and I just thought it'd be it'd be good to talk about what it takes to do this. Um, you know, to make it work. And, and the other issue that, that I've had is that one of the reasons that I made it, I made my own LUT recently was because of this black crush that we get inside the black magic switcher. Um, so that a lot of times our, the black levels um, coming out of the switcher are not, um, they're, they're crushed up a little bit. And so I, I was like, I have to correct for that, but how do I do that? You know, so how do I correct for something that's not happening in the camera? So the LUT in the camera isn't the right you know, to make this work, you know, because it's it's going to still look like over contrasting. And when I first got this Sony camera, I looked over contrasting. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, so I, um, and, and right now I'm wearing some dark stuff, but you can still see a little detail in the black shirt. It's not like it's, it hasn't gone to black, black, um, because that's what would happen without that, without that lot there. But there's a nice um, difference between the black t-shirt and the overshirt, which is yeah, a dark blue. This would have all gone bad black, things. you know, or very close to black and inside of the, inside of the other light. So, so, um, I'm going to explain a little bit about LUTs, and then we'll talk a little bit about the process that I'm using to build that LUT. But I'm going to show you kind of the step-by-step -step of that, and then we'll answer your questions. Um, we probably won't get, you know, this is going to be a basic intro to doing this. I just, the goal is to get people over the hump, because now, once I started doing it, I do it all the time now. Like, it was like, it was as soon as it was like, oh, I got to figure this out. And then you figure it out, and you're like, oh, this isn't hard. So I just want to make sure people know it's not hard. None of the software that I'm going to show, I mean, I have a, I have Black, I have Resolve Studio, but this all works inside of the free version of Resolve. So you don't have to um, buy anything to make this, to build these LUTs. Um, now, the thing to understand about LUTs in, in general is that we all, we, many of us have seen curves, right? So you have, you know, you have your, your typical, this is the curve you would see in, in Photoshop. And, and sometimes you'll grab onto that center and pull it up and so that it curves like that, right? That's a pretty typical thing. Oh, I want to make this, I want to make the midtones a little brighter. Now, what is that actually doing? What it's doing is it's saying it's coming in here and what used to be this this level is now this level and it goes out. So it's making instead of being the same as it came in, it's now being it's now brighter. And that whole curve defines that for one channel, um, you know, so so that's how a one a channel by channel by channel or a overall gamma can be can be adjusted. The difference that that LUTs have is that they are a cube. And what they're doing is they're mapping the red, green, blue to to RG, um, uh, the red, green, blue to X, Y, Z. So so now what you have is you have a you have a um, you have this and you can move it in you know each one of these points can be moved in any direction. 
Um, and so it's pushing all of those colors where they need to go. But it's just an, a 3D version of the curve that you're used to in Photoshop. Um, these, are, um, these are just coordinates. Um, there are a variety of different um, levels of coordinates that you can do. So, so one of the things is, is that you have, and the reason you might use more or less is, is really processing. So what's typical is um, there's a 17, 33, and 65 are the most typical um, ones that you'd see. Uh, I don't know anybody that uses 17. 17 is really designed for real time. 33 will generally work with most real time solutions. <clears throat> Obviously, 65 points. And that means there's more points to to work with to grab onto. That's going to give you higher resolution solution. So so you're going to by adding more points, you're going to have more control over the very fine nuanced color. Because I work in real time in general, and most cameras um, have trouble processing 65. I typically work for cameras and for real-time processing. I have a t I typically work with 33. So 17 is too low usually for what I want. 33 is usually what I output for that. And I'll show you that in a second. And Alex, are these yeah. sampling points from the image that the software looks at the image in 17 or 33 different areas? Or is it more complex it's, than it's, that? It's the points. No, it's not, it's not the points on the image. It's the number okay. of points in the cube. So the ah, cube okay. has a certain number of points that are there. Um, and so the uh, so the, the that's a that's a cube now because what a LUT looks like, I mean this is I, you may think that but what a cube file looks like is um, is this right? <laughs> so it's just coordinates. <laughs> it's I mean it's it's literally like these are the coordinates that you have here, you know. Um, and so these are the, but this is this is all it is. This is not it's not a um, and this is a sixty five point LUT. It's not just sixty five points themselves. It's sixty I think it's sixty five. By 65, I think. Um, so this is the um, uh, so this is 65 by 65 by 65. Those those and and so you can see these are all the coordinates that are in there um, that that make this. And I think I've just I've just slowed my computer down there by doing that. 65 anyway. Cubed, so you see, it's, it's a lot of data. So it's still it's still um, uh, a lot of points. Um, but the but anyway, so that's all it is. You're building this text file that is the coordinates of the it's the X Y Z coordinates that relate to. The RGB, and we we did talk with some of the folks that were um, some of the the Thursday night football crew about how they how they interpolate that, how they work with it, how they do all those other things. Um, that's a whole other second hour that I'll let you look at. What I want to do is make sure you understand how at least I go from whatever I have in my camera to getting something that is that that is what I'm using today. You know, is the LUT that I built. You know, with with what with what I'm gonna the process that I'm gonna show you. So, the first thing you need to do is get a sample. You need to capture a sample. Now, that if you're gonna use it out of the camera, you can capture that sample directly to the camera. You want to turn off the LUTs that are there. So, if it has when it says video look, or extended video, or HLG, or PQ, or whatever, that's a LUT. <laughs> that's a LUT. Your funny thing is your false color. That's a lot too. So that's a lookup table that that does what it needs to do to give you that that look. So um, so anyway, so what what I what I do or what I did for how I look here is that I use this um, I use this color checker. Uh, this is the X right. Um, let me hear me. The color checker here. So this is the X right color checker that I that I used here. It's it's nice and small. Uh, yeah, you can use little ones. One of the things that makes life easier is to before you do use this is look at the orientation that Resolve has for this color checker. So if you turn it sideways like what Guy has there, you have to rotate everything to do that. <laughs> so so you so you want to um, you want to make sure that 
like I believe that it's um, the the color checker on it, and, and there may be a way to do it, but what I do is I hold it like this, specifically because that's the easiest way to use it in Resolve. So um, so the, uh, so here what, what you'll see is now I've turned everything off. Now what I did um, for this to correct for the switcher is that I ran the camera into the switcher, ran the switcher into the computer, and then in the computer, I have, uh, I opened up QuickTime. <laughs> like I just want, I want to see what the UVC output is of the, of my switcher. And then what I did is I literally just screen captured it. Like I just went, I just want to capture this the way it's going through the system. So it's set to log and it goes through the system. So what I ended up with is, is that. So that is what. It looks like so. There's the log. Um, I'm holding up the. I'm holding this up here, um, and I'm and I'm looking at it there. So that's that's how this begins. Now, what I have here is you'll see this little selector over here, um, and this is the. Um, you can. You, there's a bunch of different options. There's there's lots of different color charts that you can use. I'm. This is the color checker classic that I'm using here, um, and so uh, so this is the. You know, this is how. Um, uh, this is how I set this up, right? So now what I'm going to do is I am going to say I want, I, I have to go here and I want to say I want to match a color chart, right? Now these are the sample points that I need for that color chart, you know, that, that's there. So I'm going to, you know, basically you're just corner pinning this onto this, um, this sample here like this. Now you could just frame in the past, what I've done is I've just framed the, um, uh, in the past, I've just framed the color this color panel. The reason I don't do that anymore is because even though I'm letting it auto check, it's not going to be perfect. And I want to see my face. Like I want to make sure that my skin tones are what I want them to be. Not, you know, so this is going to get me close, but it's not going to necessarily um, get me right on. So I've displayed this, I've selected this, now I need to set my source gamma. Where, where am I coming from? And so I'm going to say I'm going to do an S log 3. Um, my target gamma, I'm going to set to 2.6. Um, and my target color space is going to be uh, rec 709. Um, so that's where I'm going. I need to say where I'm going from and to um, to do that. I am 56K color is what I'm, what I'm shooting here. And now I'm just going to tell it to match. So what it's going to do is it's going to go boom. And that is, you know, that's the beginning. Right, so this is how it, it 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 will look at all those points and it will grab onto those and it'll show me what the differences are down here. So what I'm seeing in this in this area here is, you know, where I was and where I where I went to to make that actually happen. Um, now this may not be exactly what I want, but typically what I've done from here is the first thing that I do after I do this is actually take it and put it in my camera. So the way that I do that and so. You can just make a bunch of decisions about what you're doing, but the best way to do this, in my opinion, when you understand how to do this and you're not trying to download one from the internet or you're tr not trying to send it to someone, is immediately look at what it did. <laughs> like, so I'm not going to do that here because I think I'm going to walk around and do a bunch of things, but I'm going to but I'm going to explain like what it took to ex export this out. So, um, so what I'll do here is uh, once this has been done. All I have to do, and, and again, you can make this a lot more complicated. Like I'm, I'm showing you the basic of how to do this. And, and you know, they'll, we'll bring in uh, Charles and others to talk about how 
they might recommend, for instance, not necessarily using this base node as what you're doing. And that's a pretty common thing to do is leave that one alone. Um, and so, uh, so they'll add more nodes and so on and so forth. There's a lot of other things that we can make better here. But um, this is how we, uh, but what I, this is just the very basics. I want to make sure that I'm not making it more complex. So we have this little X right. We make that correction. Um, and then the, uh, now what I'm going to do is control click on the actual image. I'm in the color panel and I'm going to control click. Now, one thing that's useful here, and I'm not going to get into, oh, we'll talk about it in a second, but this, 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 this is useful here in a second. Um, now the, I'm going to control click on this and all I'm going to do is say generate a LUT. That's all I need to do. Generate a LUT. I want to generate a 33 point LUT, a 33 point cube. And it's going to ask me where I want to put it. And I'm going to um, the, uh, and then I'll put, put that in there. And so, so the, uh, but that is, I'm going to save that out as a cube. The next step for me is to, um, uh, I'm going to save that out as a cube. And the next step uh, is for me to save it to the SD card. Like that's it. So you're saving, you're saving that out. But that process, for whatever reason, took me, I mean, I, I did it, I started doing it a couple of years ago. But that process took me a year before I, before I started thinking about like, what does it take to actually build a cube file? And that's all it is. You match your color, you get it to where you want it to look like on, on, on your, uh, in, in your black, in, in Resolve. Uh, you can do it by hand as well. So for instance, again, like you can go in here and you can go into, um, uh, so we can go into here. I can go, uh, into, you know, just, you know, a variety of, um, you know, you have all these different grading options here. You can go into, you can do all of the other corrections that you want to do. You can add new nodes to do this so that you're not completely, you know, stuck with it. But for instance, I might go here and say, well, I know that I want to bring my shadows up. So I'm going to bring my, so I can grab onto this and start to, you know, I can raise up my blacks a little bit here. Um, and then I can grab on, I might say, I know that the midtones want to be a little bit lower. So I'm going to crush, pull those back down a little bit. I want to may maybe bring my highlights back a little bit, you know, to this, you know. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that I may know that I want to do, um, you know, with this process. I also may, um, you know, for instance, you know, if you look at, if I'm looking at this vector scope, I may grab this and you can see how I can change my hue. And so I may want to look for, you know, my skin or whatever and make sure that it's right on, you know, it's right on this line, you know, that's, that's there. That, that may be something that I want to play with there, but I will rarely do that first. <laughs> like, so, so this is, I will do the very first correction that I did, that I popped out with. I'll immediately copy that to my camera. I'll pop it back into my camera and I'll take a look at it, you know. I'll just say, okay, is it, is it, how close is it? And I want to make some fine, you know, like I want it to be, oh, it's a little green. It's a little yellow. It's a little this. The, the camera checker is, is how to get close if you haven't done a lot of color correction, um, which I haven't. You know, I'm, not, I'm not a colorist. Um, and so it gets me close. But then I start making fine adjustments from there. I think the one that I'm using right now is not perfect. I think that Charles might be able to do a better job um, than, than, I, than I've done so far. And I'm probably going to try to persuade him to do one. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, uh, but mine's a fourth or fifth version, you know, of it. I looked at it and I was like, I think I'll change this over here. So, um, but it's corrected. Again, it's not just downloading a, a, a one or building it. It is correcting for the whole pipeline. And so this is something that we kind of changed because, or I started changing because I noticed that 
we were getting some colorations and so on and so forth through our pipeline. And you remember, you can apply this a lot not only to the camera that you're using for something like Zoom, but you can also apply it to, um, uh, you can apply the, this to, um, uh, to cameras. So you get a, some version of, of some of the Blackmagic converter cards, for instance, from HDMI to SDI have the ability to load a LUT into them. So as you're converting from HDMI to SDI, you can apply a LUT or SDI to HDMI, you can apply a LUT. And the advantage of that is that you can now, and usually it's a 33 point, not a 65. Um, you can now take a GoPro, take a, you know, some other camera and throw charts in front of it and convert it so that it matches your other cameras. You know, so you, you, you're applying the LUT, it takes a little bit of back and forth to make it work. Um, but you're applying that LUT on the way through. And I just wanted to show, I think that the, the biggest thing I wanted to do for the second hour was to show that it's not that hard. <laughs> like it's not, it's not very hard to, to make that, uh, to make that change. Um, and again, you can load it in, uh, you can look at the, I, I realized I was going to show how to do the Sony camera, but I'm like, oh, on the camera that I need to show. So I can't really show you the interface, but it's just finding, you know, where you add a LUT. And what happens is with most of these cameras, you can't add the LUTs over online, the little cameras, like a Venice, you can just, push the new Venices, I guess the Venice 2 and with the new update, you can push over ethernet, you can just push the LUTs into it. But these little cameras, you have to load them in. Once they're loaded in, you can select them in the camera, you can select them with the extra software, you can do those things, but you can't. And they, you can do that with the Sony, with Blackmagic, you do the same thing, you put it on a card or on a drive, you plug it in, you select it in the Blackmagic, and then you just load it in as, as LUTs. You can't, I don't have any software that will change the LUTs on a Blackmagic camera. I don't know why, but that seems to be verboten. <laughs> so, so we haven't been able to uh, make those changes in real time. You have to go to back to the camera and make that adjustment. Anyway, hopefully that's, uh, I think I'm, I'm going to guess we have a couple questions. And so. Yeah, we do. We also, Mitchell wanted to raise his hand and pop yep. in with one of his. Mitch. Yeah, I'm, I'm watching what you're doing. I've got an FX3 and I could do everything you did and create the file. But let's say I'm collaborating with somebody outside. Maybe it's Charles. Um, he doesn't have my camera to be able to make that uh, that assessment that 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 LUT is working. How do you do that? Uh, is it, yeah, is he running through you, some software or something? So you send a file. You what I've done in the past because Charles has built Charles has built LUTs for me in the past for other cameras, and the way that we've done it is that we get on. I mean, because I'm correcting it for Zoom, and so what we do is is I. I send that to, to Charles. Charles sends me back a lot. We jump on Zoom and he looks at it through his um, his, his really nice monitor and goes, "Oh, let me let me let me make an adjustment." You know, like and, and he'll and he'll look at it because you you are having to adjust it a little bit. There's a little bit of tweaking going on. It's not the same as doing film work. We're correcting for web, you know, and so um, uh, so so I think that it's been one of those things that we. Um, uh, it, it takes a little bit of back and forth to get it just right, but it does definitely improve the the model, you know, for for that. So, so I I, I think that it, yeah, one ahead, other yeah one other quick thing is there's no difference between a three D LUT and a uh, a LUT, correct? Is it is a three D by 3D. nature of what it is? I mean, there there are some they're they're not all three D. There are three D. There are two D LUTs. There's these weird pings that people use that somebody I think that I think VMix has something. It's like a it's like a ping LUT that's not a 3D LUT. It's like a ping that does the color correction um, in it. Um, I th so I think that vMix uses it and a handful of other folks use it. So there are other versions of lookup tables, um, but the mo the vast majority of things that are using LUTs are using the cube file. Yeah. 
Okay, we do have a group of questions coming in, so let's dive into them. Mitch, what's the first one? Our first one from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. For making a lot, what is the best approach to lighting a color card? Fully lit set or just one flat source? Well, the most important thing in any kind of color work is if you are taking, if you are doing this process so that you can videotape or otherwise capture scenes, you want to capture that scene's lighting the way it is. For those of us who are doing it for our facial shots on Zoom, you want to start with the lighting that you have. The, it is always a problem. And I learned this really early in outdoor shooting to try to white balance anything in a light other than what your actual final scene is going to be. So what's critically important is to let the color be done based on the lighting hitting your scene. Alex, what else do you have? Yeah, so the... um, what what we do when we're building a LUT, a true LUT, like I'm build, I'm showing how I built a LUT for my little web camera, and I and of course there's um, there was some I think someone mentioned that they they just don't use the Blackmagic UVC connection. The problem that I have is that I need those HDMI's for something else, <laughs> so I have one that goes out to my 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 Wacom tablet and one that the, the multi view that goes here. I can't I don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> so so anyway, so that's why that's why I use it the way I use it. Um, but. Uh, um, and we've gotten into using, in the bigger picture, using LUTs as a solution to match cameras that don't get along. Um, so what I, when we do it with matching cameras that we don't get, that don't get along, um, what we do is we're using a Dumont chart typically. So when we're really matching them, this is great for the little stuff and it's, keep this in my backpack, when in doubt, if I'm going to do something that I think I might want to use later, I throw this in all the time just so that I have some point of reference, like just some, it, it's not going to be the be all end all, but this little guy here, um, this little pocket, it's not very expensive. And I just go like this and I just show it there for a second. And I just do a, a plate with that so that I have the information of this is what it looked like there. And, and you can get it, go, you can save people a lot of time if you just have one of these that you just throw up before you start shooting in a, in a certain scene. The, uh, whether you use a building the LUT or not, you just, just having that is giving you reference. Now, what we use when we're really setting cameras up, and there's another question about profiles and LUTs, is uh, we use a DeMont chart, uh, a 24R DeMont chart um, with, a, with a cavity back, with a cavity center. Um, so it's, I think it's 24R is because the R is the cavity center, I believe. Um, and I don't, I think I have one, but it's pretty, it's kind of buried under a couple things over here. But the, um, that's a much more expensive, um, it's like, I don't know, $1,800 <laughs> for, for a piece of, for, for the, for the, for it. And, um, it allows us, it's very precise. It's a lot. Um, and it, and it also allows us to do something that's specific. So there's an edge. Let me see if I can find one really quickly here. Um, there is a, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to just give you a second. A second. Uh, you'll also note that people mostly hold these by their face. Because if you get faces right, people will allow everything else to be a little off if the person looks perfect. So generally, I see people taking color charts and bringing them up close as as a guy is doing right now. He's showing you that would be a typical shoot color correction plate for me to look for in the camera. Yeah, and and so this is a um, this is what I have used for the last. Probably fifteen years. Um, let's see here. This is this is this is the Demont chart. So this is what I use, and this tells us a variety of things. It tells us the framing. It tells us some resolution things. But these colors. The interesting thing about the colors 
is that when they are correct, they will form the, the these colors are very specific in the sense that they in a vector scope, they will like just go from straight lines from point to point to point to point to point to point. So when you when you are trying to match cameras and make them perfectly accurate, um, this is a great chart for that. And it also just gives you so many samples that are there. It also means that a lot of times what I do when I'm trying to match a camera, and this is not for LUTs, but for profiles, which was a question later, when I'm trying to color cameras for a show, I will I will basically do a transition that cuts along here. Um, and I'll do this to check the LUTs as well. So I'm doing a square transition, you know, that, you know, that, you know one of the, the transitions you would never normally use in a switcher. But I do it so that my inside camera is my, is my um, reference and my outside camera is the one I'm matching. And what I do is when I can see the line between these two, they're not matched. As soon as the lines disappear all the way around this, and you can't do that with the other color charts because they're not built in a rectangle. And so, um, and so, uh, so you, this one works really well for that. And it's also a great way to check your LUTs as well. And when you check the cameras back and forth between each other to see if, the, if you see lines between them when you do a transition, then they're not the same. And so um, you can get very, very accurate um, setups in that area. So the, but the Demont chart um, uh, is, uh, the Chroma Demont chart is the, the kind of the, and that's the industry standard for, for how you do those, how you do the, um, those processes. But this is a, the demand chart's expensive and it's hard to put in your pocket. So I keep this one around um, <laughs> to do those things. And so, so anyway, the, um, when we do that one, we light it with two lights, typically two large lights. We try to make it as even as possible. We're trying to avoid any kind of reflection. We're trying to get it straight on. Um, the camera for us is typically 10 feet away. Um, it depends on the lens. Cause you may have to, if you're, cause here's the thing is you start to do these cameras, oftentimes you want, especially with a LUT, um, well, when I'm trying to match the cameras perfectly, whether I'm coloring them for a profile or a LUT, it matters what lens you're using because the lens has color. Some, some lenses are cooler than other ones and some lenses are warmer. And so you actually have to correct it with the lens that you're going to use. And so sometimes if you're using a wide angle, the camera will get closer. But a lot of times we're at, we're about 10 feet away as we, as we make that work. So anyway, that's what we um, the, that's how we do it. And then I typically do it at 56 K because I shoot almost everything at 56 K. <laughs> so, so, um, so that's, and it, but the LUT should work at 32 and I mean, if you haven't matched correctly, the LUT should not require you to be at a certain color temperature. Um, it should work in both color temperatures. And one of the big lessons you're hearing today is that these are measurement tools. They're not objective or not subjective. They're objective. In the old days, we used to use full frame bars. Why? You saw those old traditional color bars, just blocks of different colors. On all the vector scopes, there were little targets. And if you shot your camera at a set of bars, those little highlights had to be in the center of those little squares. And if they were in the center of squares, all your camera colors were generally balanced. It has become much more sophisticated, but the point again, I'm trying to make is that this is measurement, not subjective. Yeah, the one thing that we're we're not really talking about matching cameras here, but but the one thing that will happen is is that when you get subjective, this is when you when you are trying to match something. I still use these even when we're doing subjective. That's why I use that transition that I was talking about earlier because I'm not trying to put it in a vector scope. What I'm trying to do is say, is this camera like the other camera? And so what happens is a lot of times we get a client who wants to make something a little bit warmer than the, you know, they don't want it to, they want it to be warmer. They don't want it to be pristine. They want it to have a feel. Um, and so, so what we do is we use this to match the camera. But again, it's the, the fact that they go around in a, in a rectangle has been very useful for us uh, to do that matching. 
Every switcher has a rectangular wipe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 100%. All right. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Tim Furlong. And the question is, is there a difference between a color profile for the camera versus the LUT when it comes to building or creating them? I know we're discussing building LUTs today, but is the process the same in order to create camera color profiles? Alex? No. In fact, they're, they're, they're very, two, two very different things. Now, I'm making it confusing because I'm using them in a way that you might use a profile normally. But what you're doing is by using a LUT, we can put that color correction anywhere. We can put it in the chain. We can put it in a camera that accepts a LUT. We can, do, we can put the lookup table. It, 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 the lookup table is like a concrete version of a camera profile. The camera profile typically is something that we can adjust. You know, so um, I'm, you know, if I have an ATEM, uh, connected to a Blackmagic uh, uh, camera, I can sit there and tweak all the colors in real time. I can't do that with a LUT. <laughs> like I can't, not yet. I can't sit there and tweak the LUT in real time and, and figure it out. So as I'm building those camera profiles, those are all the color settings in the camera that typically sit on top of the LUT. The LUT is the the kind of the the the, the base knowledge of this is the basic correction. Again, if you think about your camera, when you turn off video look, you're now looking at a log. This is what, you know, it's not the raw what came out of the camera, but it's it's a much, it's an uncorrected version of, of that color. So you might have a video look on top of something and then the camera profile is going to sit on top of that base correction and you're going to make fine adjustments to the red, green, blue, saturation, uh, gamma, black levels, all those things. But those are building, you can build those profiles. Um, they're going to sit, but they sit on top of the LUTs. Um, by doing what I'm doing, a lot of times you're going underneath them and it, it's more time consuming and potentially dangerous. Um, but, but, the, um, but for the most part, you know, when you're, when you're tr- shading a camera, you're affecting its, its profile. When you're loading a LUT, you're, it's kind of a lower end solution that you're kind of inserting into the, into the base processing that, um, that, that you have there. Yeah, that makes great sense. Let's go to the next question. Danny Grizzle from Longview, Texas asks, Thanks for this tutorial. I'm ignorant of LUTs. Is there a standard color space that LUTs work in? Or are there many types of LUTs for various color spaces? And are LUT tables human readable? <laughs> As you just saw, Alex put one up. They're readable. You can see what the numbers are. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't know what you're doing. But Alex, go ahead and dive in. Yes. I think that um, Roscoe posted one. This is the... Um, you know, this is Roscoe posted this in the in the chat. Now, this is one that hasn't been adjusted, uh, but this is the um, uh, this is what a lot you know. This is the LUT, right? This is the the those are the little points of of space. Now, there are things that will like there's a there's a there's a software that uh, that I, I can't find my registration code for, so I'm not going to show you called Lattice that will let you look at the LUTs and move them around and and see what the LUT looks like um, and, and what you're actually doing to those colors. Um, as you're working on it. Um, so the, uh, the the answer is, yeah, the LUTs are for every color. You have a different LUT for all these different color spaces. <laughs> so anytime you're going from log to any anything else, whether it's ACES or whether it's it's going in from the log to the to um, HDR, one color space to another. So there there are um, many, 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 I mean, you know, many LUTs. Now, what you commonly do is you are... Um, you know, like, let's see if I can find this really quickly here. Uh, gonna... So like to give you a sense of this, this is, these are my LUT options. When I say if I want to apply a LUT, 
These are all, there's no LUT selected right now, but these are all the LUTs <laughs> that, are, that are available, um, you know, just, just as a quick dropdown, um, you know, inside a Resolve. So there's a lot of LUTs, you know, so because what they are is they're not, they are not like, this is how I get anything to look like something. This is how I get this to look like that. So this is how I take log, and that can be S3 log, S2 log, Blackmagic log, uh, Airy log, um, Canon log. I have to know where I'm going from. This is a transfer function. It's a lookup table that says, take images coming in here and apply this curve or sets of curves or this, this cube to get the color to look this other way. So I need to know what I'm coming from and what I'm going to. Um, so I need to, you know, so I'm going to Rec 709. I'm going to um, uh, HLG. I'm going to a certain whatever, whatever that is. I need to know where I'm going to get to, and I know need to know where I started. The LUT is the transfer function. It's the path from here to there. Um, it's like someone saying, "How do I get? How do I get to Moscone Center in, in San Francisco?" Okay, where are you coming from? <laughs> like, 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 I need to know. Like, if, if I give you a bunch of direct, because all the LUT's doing is giving you the the directions. If I gave you the directions from Oakland, it won't get you there from Marin. <laughs> so, so, so the uh, so you you know like you, you know like if you take the same directions, you're just gonna you know, you'll end up in the ocean. So, so the um, so you want to uh, think about how you you know where are you starting? If I'm going to give you directions on how to get there, where are you starting? And where are you ending? And then the LUT is is the directions on how to get there. Mitchell. Yeah, this is uh, my point is <clears throat> somewhere in the in this question also. Um, I just shot Airy Raw uh, for a commercial in a uh, boutique store, and I had I didn't have a LUT with a ch chip camera or anything like that. But I went to the Airy website and found a uh, a 3D LUT for that particular camera and a mirror in this particular case, and applied it. It was a 3D Airy 709. And did the post on that, it looked pretty darn good without any tweaking. So what's the difference between doing yeah. it that way and creating my own LUT for it? Well, you create your own look. I mean, uh, uh, most filmmakers want it to look a certain way. Like they want it to look, the, they, and they don't necessarily want, you're, you're absolutely right though. Uh, most can't, mo like if you, on a known path, like Airy will build its own, you know, Black Magic has its own 709s. Airy has its own 709s. Um, you know, Sony has its own 709s. So this is going from our log that we're capturing in to 709. Um, the the main thing is is and and you're it will be accurate to get from one to the other. The problem is, for instance, this is a good example. Like what I'm doing here, I needed to change it to a, adjust the blacks for my specific need. That is not what the ca the camera capturing Sony to 709 looks crushed going through the Blackmagic hardware. So I am making a correction for the pipeline um, uh, that I need to make that's specific to me. It's not what Airy, Airy didn't think of that. You know, and if I, if I, if I used an Airy, which would be great uh, as my webcam, if I had a, if I threw up an LF, you know, as my, as my webcam, which would be awesome. Uh, Airy, if you're listening, I'm happy to uh, show it off for you. Um, anyway, so, uh, but if I did that, I would have to build another lot to account for my pipeline. The, the pure Airy to 709 wouldn't be enough. And so sometimes you're making those corrections. And again, we're making, oftentimes I'm using the LUTs. I might take a camera that I can't shade. So I have a GoPro or I have something else. I want that to look like, it doesn't have a way to shade it. It doesn't have a way to really do color profiles. It just does what it does. So I take the HDMI out of the GoPro, run it into something that's going to let me apply a LUT in a box. And then I can shade the Go, not shade, but I can adjust the GoPro so that it looks like, the and again, so it looks like the other cameras in my production, but that may not be a straight seven oh nine correction, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and you're hearing this jargon, you know, for those of you who don't play a lot in color space, 709, Rec. 709 is the standard color space for HD regular video. Uh, Rec. 2020 it's, for high, it's there's always a whole standard, bunch of these standards. We have standard dynamic range. It's the box that that color space lives inside of. Right. And those are standards set by the standards body so that everybody can play in the same thing. Mitchell, you had another comment? Yeah, it's actually a question for Alex relates to this. Um, I shot Ari Raw. I applied the Ari um, LUT uh, for 709, and then I wanted to tweak the colors a little bit. Am I Have I already thrown out color information to be able to do those tweaks, or am I doing it on top of the 709 you, where it's you, already? You can do it on top. I mean, you can make that basic correction if you know you're going to 709. Um, where you do that, do you do it in the correction before or after? That's something you want to talk to a colorist about. But typically, I mean, you're still in the space. You still have all that data. If, if it's still in the same, if you're in Resolve doing that correction, I mean, I don't know what happens in Premiere or After Effects, but if you're doing it in Resolve, you're going to, um, uh, you're going to, you, you still have all the data there. You know, it's concatenating that correction. So, so the, um, so you can make, then you can make a little, you know, you can make fine adjustments to it. So typically, I am, and I'm I'm not a colorist, but I typically will convert to, from from what's coming what the whatever log I had to the color space is the first thing that I do, and then I and then I start making other adjustments to it from there. So um, not all colorists agree with me. Yeah, it's exactly what I did. Just want to make sure I wasn't screwing around guy. with it the wrong way. I'm a simple. You should guy also know that needs. all all the major NLEs have these look up tables built into them generally so whether you're using final cut or premiere or anything else if you I don't know if you, if can, you have a I file do the, does final cut export the lut after you've done all the color no it's not a matter of exporting the lut it's mattering right. if you get footage in that was shot yeah, in yeah. airy raw there will be a setting that cr put, applies a lut to that so that on your apple monitor it looks fine right so you well, can and, at least get to work on it. That's and, not the colorist process, but that's just a quick LUT application so you can work with the footage. Right. And if you look at like um, uh, the stuff that Stu Mashowitz did with bullet, you know, with looks, you know, that those are all LUTs. Those are all lookup tables. I'm taking footage from here to there, you know, and, and some people build looks to give you a certain look. Like I want it to all look like the matrix, which is, you know, if you look at the matrix color, um, uh, like I have friends that will take... Um, that will I'm, I'm trying to get black magic to add this to resolve but what i want black magic to do is it has a scene detection every time you change the camera or camera detection and it'll cut all the cameras i wanted to grab give me i put a video in and i wanted to to separate all of the shots pick the midpoint in every shot and export those all out as frames make a big poster because what you can see is different scenes all have different looks you know like so for in matrix is a good example of the blacks go to green and then the blacks, then they're, they're, then they go to a warmer color when they're out of the matrix. When they're in the matrix, you don't notice it when you first start watching the movie, but it's a subtle green. And then when they're out of that, it's a subtle warm color that gives you, that tells you where you, where you are subconsciously. But those are different LUTs. <laughs> those are different, those are different, you know, those are different looks that they built so they could apply that to every, now they colored it. I mean, I don't know if they, they actually built a LUT for it, but they colored it to go to back then they wouldn't have had they wouldn't have done that in the same way but the point is is like when you buy a look a look package of LUTs that you can get a lot of those are not even raw, uh, they're not even logged to 709 they're just 709 to 709 they are a lookup table to get from your normal look 
to something that looks different. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I went yeah. in, I went into Premier and I applied the uh, uh, the Ari LUT for 709. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Stu's Great Magic Bullet and went for looks. And I just wanted to make sure I wasn't yeah. building on top of the wrong thing and then no, taking I, advantage of the raw. The I will admit, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know. How, I, I, I don't think that, that that would affect it. I don't think that it's closing enough. I don't know in Premiere because I just don't know Premiere well enough. All right. Guy Cochran has a question. Yeah, this one's for Alex. So if I have this Zcam and this, um, let's see, let me show you what I'm looking at. If I go over to this image profile and I I was to switch this to um, flat or or Z-log, would I then be able to uh, take that signal, put it, so the HyperDeck has, you know, HDMI in, so I want to be able to record uh, segments inside of here, but would it be best to load the LED in here? Because if you, if you go back to here and... I mean, t- typically if we're going to do color correction, I'm trying to record it without um, any well, that's, lights. Now, that's what I'm getting at is, uh, would it be for, for records, uh, would it be... But typically, so for, like, typically I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about this one here because typically I look further downstream from the from the record. The record just gets the raw data. Um, the the but usually for monitoring LUTs, what it means is that it'll let you look at the LUT, but you're not recording that. I know with the ninjas, for instance, is a good example. You can apply a LUT. The LUT is letting you look at the how it's going to look in HDR10 or Vision. The ninjas will do Vision. Uh, or or HLG or 709, and then you can, but when it's recording, it's recording the log. Okay, so for yeah. like this show, would it benefit me to run through this whole pipeline to load the LED in? Do you think it would look that much better than what you're seeing now? Uh, yours looks really good, so I don't, I mean, you're one yeah, of the better do. looking folks in our in our group. So, I mean, as far as the, the whole setup works really well. So I don't know how much it would be better, but I would try it. <laughs> you know, like, 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 you know, it's a good skill set. Um, so, so I would, you know, I, I would play with it a little bit. Um, again, you know, I'm, uh, my understanding of this is somewhat limited in the sense that it would be great to have someone like Charles come in and talk about it a little bit as well. So this is kind of a prep to let everyone think about it. And then we'll bring Charles or other colorists in to talk, to talk about um, more in-depth and uh, process. But what I wanted to show, what I was really committed to showing today was I was blown away at how, e- like when I spent a year not applying lots to my camera and then did it and finally figured it out in, in, uh, um, resolve. I was like, oh, this was so easy. <laughs> it's one of those things like you wait for a year and then you do something you realize ten takes ten minutes to do. So I just want to make sure people were left with, oh, I could go play with this, and you'll you'll do damage by doing it because you, I barely know what I'm doing, and you're you know you're you're kind of moving down. Now the other thing that's cool, if you have an Ultra Studio Mini, by the way, you can apply these LUTs to a live feed coming into Resolve. So there's a live mode in Resolve. I don't have that set up here, but you can want, you can be then looking at your camera, doing the color. So the next step for me for this is going to be to, use, to do that where you can look at the camera coming in live and you can, and the problem for me is that I can't do that with what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to fix the switcher because it's a video input, but you can take a video input in, be coloring it in Resolve and then just save the, the cube, <laughs> you know, like from the live video and then apply it to the camera. So that's a, that's a, that's the ultra studio. That's the 4k mini or whatever, you know, it's the one that's like a third rack or half rack or whatever. Um, Will it do it with the ultra card studio. as well? The ultra studio card? It might. I, 
I don't know. I, I was I was using it with an iMac, so I didn't didn't try to put a card into it. So I, it, it very well could. Um, what I know is how to use the that mini. So one thing I want to emphasize, though, for those of you who are just coming to this and have not dipped your toes into this, the the in the field shooting camera LUTs that we are using to be able to see a monitor on set is never really designed to be baked into a signal. You don't generally want to record that because the camera is recording in RAW with as much data as possible, as much luminance and chrominance information as it can get. And that Isn't RAW right? signal, you're going to just look at temporarily and then in Sometimes. post. Sometimes. Yeah, well, I have seen people use them. <laughs> well, well the, the, the issue is uh, DPs, oftentimes have a look and feel that they were trying to create. And a lot of them want to burn those LUTs in so that nobody can, can make mess changes with to their, to their look and feel. <laughs> and so, so, um, but that's a, you know, it's kind of old. Yeah. Old that's thing. a political onset yeah. discussion and that's above our pay grade yeah, here. We'll but one. just understand that, uh, that camera LUTs and look LUTs at the end where a colorist is determining the final look of something are generally considered kind of two different things. Yeah. Let's move to the next question. Never, never, ever do that. Uh, Jay Rosensky from Sheffield, UK, asked, what are the differences in the various color checker charts? You mentioned you have the classic, why classic over the video XL, et cetera. Um, well, the, 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 I'm sorry. I keep on forgetting that I'm not that. Uh, sorry. Um, just go for it. The so the, uh, the, uh, the, I have, I've just had this color checker forever. So I, I think that they call it, it when I when I bought it. It wasn't called classic. It was just it was just called the colored little the passport color checker. So um, uh, so this is uh, the they're all different. The big thing that you get out of them is the accuracy of the colors. So the colors will fade over time. So it depends on how much you use it. This one's nice because you keep it closed. You should always keep all your color charts in a closed environment. They cannot see the light ever. Um, you know and. and only time you open up the color charts is when you're when a camera's pointed at them. Do not leave them out. Do not set them out. Do not. That is the that is the absolute rule is to keep them um, in a safe place. Anyway, so the demand charts, the chroma demand chart that I showed earlier, made by DSC Labs, is this. It's the standard. I see different sizes. I don't see a lot of different charts. So if I go on a broadcast set. You're kind of expecting somebody's got a Dumont chart rolling around somewhere because that's the one. That, and again, it's it's been there forever. It allows you to fit the ve vector scope. Again, X right. I think they changed their the name of this since they since they bought this. It's a different you know, uh, company now, but they um, uh, they make a lot of them, and uh, it depends on the tools. Like X right has tools that will calibrate to those things. So so there's a lot of different um, things that are used there. Again, I. I only have I have some of the, I have the video checker I think from X-Rite as well um, that's a little bit bigger. But what I will say is that I and what's nice about a bigger one obviously is the targets are bigger you know, than, than this little one. You saw how small the targets are. You know bigger targets um, to make that actually happen. So um, I, I use a couple the little X-Rites and then I go straight to a uh, Chroma Devon chart. I don't use anything in between. I will say that DSC makes lots and lots and lots of different charts that let you organize it. And you see a lot of those charts when you go to something like Panavision for your setup day. Like you get a film camera and, or, or a digital film camera and you'll see all the DSC charts um, all sitting there because you're looking for focus, uh, back focus, uh, you know, um, sharpness, all kinds of other things that you may be looking at. And those charts help you measure those. And I will just tell you, Make sure you specify video charts because I made the mistake early of buying a print color chart and I tried to get yeah. it swapped and I had a problem with X-Rite in terms of they wouldn't yeah. send it. I think I spent 150 bucks for something that I never used once after I ordered it yeah. because they sent me the wrong one. Wah, wah. 
<sighs> Still getting over that one. Let's move on to the next question. Danny Grizzle from Longview, Texas. Charles, Alex keeps referring to Charles. Charles Poynton? Char- uh, <laughs> no. Charles Klein uh, is, a, is a member of our panel that shows up every once in a while. He's a busy guy. Um, he, and... Uh, but uh, we 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 try to drag him in every once in a while, and so he's he's been a colorist on some of my projects as well, um, and a great guy. So we'll, we'll, he's kind of our in-house like as as much as we have an in-house anything, he's our kind of our in-house color expert, and so uh, we'll we'll bring him in in the in the future. There. I've worked with Charles as well. Great, great guy. And in fact, you should go into the archives if you're interested in color. Go into the archives, look up Charles Klein as a name. It'll probably bring up the shows that he's been on. You can just listen to some of the things he said. You'll get a, a, a great basic toes-in founding of what a color colorist who really is on top of their game understands and does, what they can bring to the table. It's pretty magical. Mitchell, you had a last comment? Yeah, just real quick. Uh, I asked Charles if he could do a lot for me, and he looked at the image and went, what? I don't need to do anything. That looks pretty darn good. Well, there you go. <laughs> So he'll tell you when you don't need something. Isn't that the best kind of vendor? You yeah, want a vendor who saying, says, a, I don't need to compliment. do anything here. Don't waste your money. <laughs> so that's great. Let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana has a question. Studio Binder defines five types of LUTs, calibration, transform, viewing, 1D, and 3D. I think you hit all, but the transform. Might you briefly define these four again and then explain a transform LUT also? Um, I believe that the transform is what I was talking about, uh, EOTF, electronic to optical transform function, or the OETF, which is optical to electric, uh, electrical transfer function. So the transfer is going, I'm going from the, or EETF, which is electrical to electrical transfer function. Um, but that transfer function is how, you, how are you getting from the acquisition, you know, the, the, what the camera's capturing to the, to whatever you're going to. So that you see EOTF in a lot of, um, that's electro, electrical to optical or OETF, uh, optical to uh, electrical uh, transfer function. You see those in a lot of high-end monitors and that, and that is still a lot saying, this is, this is the kind of signal, this is the space that I'm coming into and this is the space I'm going out to. And that's, that's what all these LUTs are trying to do. Um, by the way, you, a color, the, IIC, the ICC that you use for your monitors is also a LUT. It's a different kind of LUT, and there's actually some software that will convert your LUTs to ICC, <laughs> which I'm experimenting with for a bunch of other things there. So, I will also say, fingers crossed, we are getting a little more automation. Not I, I, This, in my opinion, will never, ever replace a serious colorist, but we are seeing things like Apple early did their uh, Apple Managed Color Pipeline, which means that all... Uh, iPads, iPhones, and the rest of that, their color science will be pretty consistent. And one thing that looks one way on one of those will look uh, exactly the same on another of those devices. It it avoids the old sports bar problem where you walked in and they all were playing NBC, but all of them looked way different, so different that you're going, wow, that's really misadjusted. And and ACES is a big piece of that puzzle. We'll do a whole second hour on ACES, um, and that is, but now supported on the iPhone, which is kooky. Um, right, but we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll bring some folks in for for that and talk talk about that specifically. Yeah. So they're trying to make this easier for all of us as we go along. But the skills you're learning here today and just the the language of color correction and LUTs and things like that, it really is important if you're going to keep going because 
if you look at your monitor, you go, well, I don't know what it is, but that's just wrong. When you have this kind of basic grounding, you may have some ideas as what's wrong and how to fix it and whether it's getting baked into your files, which is the ultimate of what you don't want. You want to maintain something that you can fix later. So let's go to the next question. James Fosline from Minneapolis, Minnesota. James says, do you ever take multiple samples of color charts and slightly move angle to lights so any reflection is accounted for? Uh, Alex? Uh, definitely move the lights so that we don't have any reflections. <laughs> That's a, I mean, it, it, you don't have to do very much to do that. Um, you're getting a soft, usually when I'm lighting a, a chart, it's with a large source. Um, typically a, a diva is kind of the smallest or sometimes a one by one, but nothing smaller than a one by one uh, light. And then just remember that, you know, with all surfaces, if you're, you know, angle of incidence equals angle, you know, these two angles are going to be the same. So, uh, so what you want to do is if your camera is, you know, if you have a camera here looking in, you got to make sure that whatever wherever that light is, it's not going to bounce into the camera. That's all you got to do. And so you, you definitely move the lights to where you need to so that you don't have any reflections. Let's move to the next question. Michael Tan at San Diego, California. Are LUTs used in live productions as well, or is it only used for post-production? Alex? Yeah, we use it live. So we don't adjust them live. That's what we use the shader for. But again, we use them for live production to get all of those cameras, um, especially when we have cameras that are different manufacturers, to tie them all together. Um, you know, we've, we've needed to do that for a variety of pipelines because they're going through things and we can't shade the cameras for whatever reason. There's a bunch of reasons we might not be able to shade those cameras. And, and so being able to apply those LUTs, um, to those cameras and again, like a GoPro, another, uh, some other camera, um, we found that LUTs were really useful in the live production, but we don't adjust them live. We adjust, we shade them live. Yeah, camera shading is something you hear from, uh, particularly sports broadcast. They're doing but, that in real time. But again, the whole the, the, thing. The LUT is the foundation that we shade on top yeah. of. So it, right. you're looking at a LUT. If you if you put up a big professional camera and, and it looks like regular video, there's a LUT there that got it there. And then you're shading on top of that. So, But you can adjust that LUT as well if you want to. Yeah, it's the same philosophy as you can sometimes shoot a canopy out of white balance. Your first order of business is to correct that, get something that you can start with that's decent. And then that matches all the other decent cameras. And then you're applying looks and things like that to everything that's even. Let's get to the next question. Danny Grizzle, Longview, Texas. How consistent are camera sensors on same model, same brand? Do characteristics age over time? Alex? They don't usually age. They can get black balanced. And a lot of times the problem is you can never, with most cameras, unless you get into the engineering menu, which is not usually available to you as a consumer, you can't get it all the way back to zero. So sometimes people can make adjustments to the camera that make it hard to get. Even if you do a factory reset, you're not always getting back to that. So that's a little bit of a challenge. The sensors themselves generally are very consistent. Um, what's what is not consistent is the lenses. So even if you're buying a pre-packaged lens on a camera, those lenses oftentimes have very subtle changes. Will most people notice? No. <laughs> like if you use a bunch of fixed lenses that uh, cameras, you're probably going to be okay if you just get them all to the same settings. But again, you have to get all the settings right. And again, if someone's done some hard changes to it, you may not be able to get back to a perfect. Um, so understanding how to make those adjustments yourself um, allow you to solve those in the field. Next question. Guy Cochran, Seattle, Washington, and right here on our panel, what is the least expensive LUT box to take HDMI to SDI with the color transform? Alex? I, 
there are some black magic ones. I think that the HD, the six, well, I, I know that the 6G HDMI to SDI and SDI to HDMI have the ability to load LUTs into them. I think that some of the smaller boxes also can load box. I think that the, I'm not positive, but I think the HDMI to SDI bi-directional can do LUTs and I'm not 100% sure that they do or not. Affirmative. So you can, yeah, you can. So those, I don't think they'll do a 65. I think you need to do a 33 um, point LUT, but I think that you can load them into that bi-directional. It's a really inexpensive little box to apply to apply a LUT. The more expensive LUT boxes will allow you to do the higher resolution ones, will give you more control over um, how you uh, interpolate between those points because there's still millions of points in between the points. And so how that interpolation happens is really where the higher end LUT boxes happen like AJAs and other people's. There you go. Next question. Um, I have a question. What other ways other than using Resolve is there to create LUTs? Uh, there's a program called Lattice, um, and Lattice is uh, that's on a Mac. I don't know if it's a, there's a PC version of it. It's like two hundred fifty dollars, uh, and it just does LUTs. <laughs> like so, it's just a, it's just a, and, and uh, uh, I was going to show it today, and I when I loaded it up, I couldn't get the. I, I have I have a number for it, but I couldn't find it, and I wasn't ready to spend another two hundred fifty dollars on it. So um, anyway, it is, uh, but it's a, it's a pretty effective little box. I build all LUTs with Resolve because it's so easy and it's free. Like it's, you know, it's a free app that you can load in and it's so powerful. Uh, to me, building lots and anything else, I guess if you wanted a simpler interface, but that's about as easy as it gets. And it's got all these extra features to dig into. Let's go to the next question. Final question coming in from Douglas Carmichael. How can you use LUTs in a live environment and wouldn't adding a LUT live add significant latency? Alex? No, the LUT is essentially part of the BIOS. So you're not, you're not changing any of the latency because it's going through a LUT. Like, when you see a camera output, it is going through a lookup table. <laughs> you know, so, so it's going, you know, so it's going through that lookup table as it, as it passes through. That's how you're getting the video look or the extended video look or the HLG look. That LUT's being applied at, at really, at, and that's why it's a little harder. You can't just like shade the LUT live right now. Um, you have to load it in because it gets kind of loaded into the camera. When you load a LUT, oftentimes you see the camera almost turn off and turn back on again because it's, it's now like, I'm changing all the things that I'm doing and then I'm coming back to this. So it's a very low end, you know, very not low end, but but low, uh, almost not BIOS level, but almost BIOS level correction to how the camera is interacting with color. So your shading sits on top of all of that. Um, and so that's what you're, you're doing there. So you don't, but you're not changing it live either. You're getting all those cameras to match or you're getting all those bits and pieces that, that look. And what I'm talking about, I'm, almost nobody else does. But, um, but you can... Uh, you can't tie them all together for live and then shade on top of that. There you go. Thank you, everybody on the panel. Thank you, Alex, for taking us through all this stuff. Uh, I, I thought it was a fascinating hour. I learned a lot. And I think everybody who was watching, I hope, did too. Uh, don't forget tomorrow, Power Hour. We're going to talk about power in production, how to get juice to whatever you need it to, whether that's a process of working with shore power or batteries or whatever. Uh, that's tomorrow. Thanks to all of the producers. Those of you who were watching the show and adding the questions, you constantly amaze me. And I think everybody who is involved with the show at the depth and intelligence of the questions you add in here and how much that helps everybody improve their skills by watching Office Hours. So thank you to you guys uh, and, and men and women and everybody else. Uh, thanks. Uh, the back end crew, unbelievable job uh, always to do Everything that's required, you have no idea how much technical expertise we are 
privileged to work with every day in the back end of the office hours system. We all learn so much just by having this community and interacting with it. If you're interested in the community, remember there are all sorts of ways you can get involved as a volunteer. Look on the website, officehours.global. Look for volunteer opportunities. There's tons of them, and you will learn a ton. Trust me. Uh, and all the panelists, as always. Thank you. We're going to head off into credits, and we will see you all tomorrow. Uh, well, let me do the collect traversal. We did 50,937 miles, 81,976 kilometers, more than 400 and... Three million of these guys. Bananas for scale laid end to end. So that's the end of the show. Thank you all for watching. See you tomorrow. Going to do a uh, ruthless review of our Let's someday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we can play with that. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I just, um, I don't know. It's I'm still learning. So th this was definitely not a, uh, I am the expert of this thing. It's just what I know so far. Well, every so, time um, you have a conversation with Charles, you go, oh, God, I know nothing. <laughs> That's true. The, the NBC guys come on and I'm like, I, I'm just like, I know. My, oh, man. I'm doing everything I can to keep up. <laughs> like, I, just, like, I think I understand most of that. So anyway, so it's, um, but hopefully that's the goal is to get us, you know, uh, you know. Audio and video can be pretty technical, folks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, look what up that uh, YouTube. That was a great, that NBC one. The Comcast NBC. Really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. See you, buddy. Adios. Bye.